Single Serving Cinema with Tim and Tay, a podcast that looks at one critical scene in a movie every other week. We explore how the scene is constructed, what the scene achieves, and what it can tell us about the movie as a whole. I'm Tim. And I'm Tay. Welcome to another All You Can Eat episode, everybody. Mm-hmm. This is a potluck. It's episode 20. We're, we're coming back around. We did a potluck for 10, doing one for 20, and uh, we're, we've uh, brought back the same guests and we're talking about the same director. Yeah, welcome, James. Uh, we have James Stacy here today, uh, co-host of The Grey NATO, a podcast about travel, diving, driving, gear, and most certainly watches, and an undeniable fan of the movie we will be discussing this week, Sicario. Welcome, James. Hey, guys. Uh, it's, your, it's your potluck boy. He's back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm back. I know how to work my plate. Let's do it. Oh, this is a, this is <laughs> yeah, a movie. Yeah. This is going to be a good movie. Yeah, yeah. Why, uh, why do you like this movie, James? Or why do I know that you like this movie uh, so much? I, I think it's probably, it's funny because I, I think it's probably my favorite, um, definitely my favorite movie of this sort of ilk made since 2010, 2011, like when we had The Departed mm-hmm. and No Country. Um, mm-hmm, I right. think like there was, not that, not that there was a lull, man, there's some great movies in there and such, but like for me, like the, the sort of tense, sort of needlessly tactical thriller that has some mm-hmm. action but isn't an action movie. Yeah. Uh, is really in my mind is defined in its modern in its modern sense by Sicario, and and this is also it was right as I started to dial in on Villeneuve. Um, right. I, you know, I'd I'd seen Prisoners, really enjoyed it, and and I you know I would say today that Prisoners does not hold up as well as this movie. In many ways, this movie feels more prescient now with what's happened over the last you know x number of years. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I I adore this movie. I love the way it's shot. Um, I, I really like the pacing and I like that they, they, they're able to make an action movie out of something that's like, it's not an action movie and, and, and they do a lot of things backwards, which makes it really mm-hmm. special. Ooh, I like a, yeah, a it's lot a really of interesting movie. Yeah. It's super interesting to dig into cause I think you're right. It could very quickly be shot and directed in a different way where it becomes something like triple frontier or I don't know, body of lies, sure. stuff like that. N- none of what, none of which are, are necessarily bad movies but a completely different feel i, I mean i, I right? also think that that if you just if you just gave this to a different director not only like i think you picked you picked stuff that's kind of in the middle of the range that you could have had but mm. this could have been a michael bay like where where the where yeah, right. some of the scenes right. we're going to talk yeah. about today yeah. like <laughs> where they shoot you know 10 or fifteen thousand bullets instead of like 10 in the big action mm-hmm. sequence you know right these are yeah these are the top tier soldiers they shouldn't be needing to fire you know countless rounds at their enemies and and there's no quote-unquote like firefighting in this film i mean a little bit towards the end but like a lot of it is we're here basically to do one thing and we're we're not really putting up with resistance um which which i think you know resistance is an interesting element for this whole film Mm mm-hmm uh, yeah, you were saying that you'd just gotten this movie is where you kind of got a, Villeneuve on your radar, and I think I would agree too. I definitely seen Prisoners. I don't think I had seen Enemy, but I caught Sicario in theaters, mm-hmm. and I do think this is kind of what what feels like the next sort of chapter for, for Villeneuve. Like Prisoners was probably a bit of a crossover between his early French stuff and Ensemble, which we covered back in episode six. Enemy is a bit of an outlier. I think he got to do something he wanted to do at that time. And then, you know, then it's Sicario, Arrival, Blade Runner, and you hit this sort of ramp that that moves him up to Doom. The guy's on a run, Right, we're now... now, Well, I mean, now he's a a global name, Mm -hmm. right? Like, he is one of the biggest... Like, the fact that he pulled off Doom Part 1 
has kind of cemented him as, you know, he's got Dune Part 2 bankrolled, and he's got that um, Arthur C. Clarke story, uh, Rendezvous with Rama, okay. up after that. So it feels like he's just doing what he wants to do now. Yeah. Uh, he's just, he's cashing uh, blank checks, as uh, another podcast I like yeah. would uh, would put it. Yeah, and I, th- I think what stands out for me with Villeneuve, and I think what defines all of his movies, regardless of kind of where you land on them, is there's a specificity to everything that he does. Um, and, and it's why I don't think he would be amazing at doing a typical genre piece. Even something like Dune kind of had to be done through the Villeneuve filter to make sense. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But, I mean, this movie very well could have been much more um, genre-y. And, and you, look mm-hmm. at, you look at, you know, a lot of other stuff that Sheridan has written or, or supported... They have genre mm-hmm. bends, the, you know, that he has a, a big Western flavor, of course. But even when, yeah. when that's not there, the same sort of motifs come up again and again. And I think mm-hmm. this is an interesting one because we have, a, we have a shared in vehicle that's being largely helmed by the viewpoint of not only the person who's not in power, but the person mm-hmm. who doesn't even understand power and a woman all, all, in, all in one sort yeah. of package. Mm-hmm. And, and the and, audience has all... to trace that. Yeah. And I want to come back to this idea of about what makes this a less conventional genre film. I just wanted to go back to what you were saying about maybe marking a new era in terms of Villeneuve's filmmaking, because it's not like Mm -hmm. this was a brand new composer or cinematographer for him. He had both these guys working with him on Prisoners, but Prisoners Mm -hmm. felt so much more like Oscar bait than this. And not to say, not to knock Prisoners, but this movie doesn't feel as Oscar baity, And it feels like Ty Sheridan's script has some pretty massive influences on certain parts of this film uh, in terms of bringing a sense of like patriotism, uh, a sense of Americana to the film that maybe Villeneuve wouldn't have been able to bridge the gap like that himself without um, an American writer like this. Yeah. I mean, in in one of the interviews that I read, uh, Villeneuve made, I mean, the very kind of trite joke that he he comes he's blessed to live it, or to be from canada because the worst thing about being in canada is the winters um and sort of saying that in context of this movie and what the united states has to deal with and i do think it's interesting i think you're right that you know sheridan who i think largely has some patriotic values in a lot of what he writes and, and what he produces this one is extremely critical of the united states and yeah yeah a lot of that is there in the script but i think a lot of that is magnified by Uh, Villeneuve and his direction there was a quote that I had where he said something essentially that this movie to him isn't even that much about Mexico even though clearly clearly there is a lot of content about Mexico and a lot of consideration given there but he says way more about the the wielding of western powers well that's a a lot of it in the in the casting as well Mm -hmm. true yeah different kind of cast than your upper echelon top flight acting well-known collaborators like Hugh Jackman uh even like Paul well, Dano yeah, is like begging was begging yeah. for an Oscar at that point in time like when mm-hmm. Prisoners came out mm-hmm. yeah well and I think you're right that Prisoners feels more Oscar baity because I think the script really leans into these like uh big big performances destructive performances right it's the performative um, these, aspect these high octane and and I'm sure Villeneuve that's what he wanted I'm, I, I would never try to argue against that but i do think you can see as he goes on as a director he's gaining more confidence and more control in saying this especially this movie is an exercise of less is more yeah right like more understated performances um, 
which kind of mm-hmm. go reflect his earliest work, like in things like Maelstrom, uh, mm-hmm. which is uh, some very intense subject matter, but it's all kind of almost, like the main character and the way that he directed that character's performance kind of makes it feel like all the importance of these issues are being swept under the rug. And mm-hmm. not to say that Sicario is the same, but it does feel like he's giving his actors a lot more time to kind of breathe and contemplate rather than perform. Yeah. I do think you approach this one where he starts to approach what I would say is maybe one of his more characteristic traits as a director are these, this, this comfort, um, this comfort with silence and with not saying things and with just allowing you to live in an environment. These things that we talked about in the Blade Runner 2049 episode and similarly um, in lots of aspects of Dune where if you're gonna if you're gonna be in a scene, the scene might start with twenty seconds of of silence or showing you the scope of the environment that you're in, things like that. Yeah, and the and score I, I really would... supports that as well. You know, helicopters dropping down into frame. You're low. It's these bass mm-hmm. notes. Uh, yeah. and it's kind of scuzzy, which I like. And it's and it's yeah, not like, like you get a little bit of a Mexican flavor when they're in Juarez. It's and and oh, everything yeah, doesn't yeah. go kind of sepia. Like <laughs> yeah. they're not doing the, the Tony Scott thing. Mm-hmm. And, and and I think a lot of that just makes it feel like this is an environment in which we're watching a few people hunt without regulation. And, mm-hmm. and, and it kind of solidifies a lot of like kind of the same way that they, they and it's not, not the same, you know, team or anything, but like I think we saw something similar in like Wind River. It's a big open mm-hmm. space and, and there's objectives there. And, and here the objectives are kind of like kind of shielded. And, and, you know, I kept, when I rewatched this movie so many times I've seen it now like the other thing that really strikes me and and I don't know if this is like a, a fully developed thought I'd, I'd, I'm interested to see what you guys think but like this feels like mm-hmm. the sort of movie that could only come after an entire generation had played modern warfare and 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 mm-hmm. call of duty and all these sorts of things because you you kind of understand the black ops thing but this isn't quite as heavy-handed as making a movie about o2 or blackwater or something like that like you mm-hmm. wouldn't put Mark Wahlberg in this film, and I'm not saying he wouldn't be great as one of the Delta guys. He's done that so many times, but like the yeah. the movie has this like very demure tone, and because you have it from the perspective of the person who knows the least, it really feels like like space is crucial. Space around Kate, space around mm-hmm. where they are, and and the, the environments in this movie I think are are so specific, especially when when we were dealing with the the Juarez El Paso back and forth. Yeah. Um, it's these set pieces yeah. that are like kind of governmental and without character. And then as soon as they leave those spaces, whether it's like a PJ, a private jet or, or some detainment center, as soon as you leave that, you're into cartel country and everybody's mm-hmm. watching their shoulder and, and you really start to get an idea of like who's comfortable in these exceedingly less and less comfortable scenarios. And I think the movie arguably yeah. ends in the least comfortable kind of setting. It's an interesting thing because yeah. it ramps up tension and discomfort throughout the whole film. Well, yeah, and in terms of location, I will say, so I, I did, I, I gave the script a look, uh, Sheridan's original script and doing the research for this, and there's more than once in it, um, one of the many lines that were cut, where they talk about their fear of this side of the border becoming like that side of the border. Like, that's what they're fighting. 
And I don't think that's never said in this movie. And I also don't think that's what this movie is particularly concerned with. That, that's, and that's something where, I mean, like Sheridan also wrote the script for the sequel, which is also kind of fear mongering um, in terms of what what's at stake in America if cartels and uh, like uh, jihadists uh, teamed up. Um, one of the many reasons why that that second movie's not so great, and the the script is is just way more genre yeah. and and goes so much harder into these areas. It's a lot more generic the, of a film. Um, mm-hmm. It has some I moments, some great it. moments, but uh, it, yeah. it doesn't stand up to the to the first. Yeah. <laughs> no. What I think, what I think, uh, one of the many things when you take this original script and then you filter it through how Vill- what Villeneuve wanted to do with this movie is, you get this idea, these helicopter shots of the border really showing you that the landscape is no different on either side, that this border is kind of arbitrary and an odd thing. And they talk about in one of the car rides when they're headed to the border that like Taft went over the border to meet with the Mexican president. He brought 4,000 men. And I think it very, very, very subtly draws attention to the fact that like this land all used to be one land, um, calls into the, into, into question these idea of, uh, of invaders Mm -hmm. and invasion, Right, because at the very beginning you have the title card where they define Sicario, and they talk about how they were they were, um, you know, Jewish assassins who were killing invaders in the Holy Land, and again, that's another thing that was a line. Um, that's something that Alejandro's character said to someone at some point. He literally defined what Sicario was and that he was it, which is, again, there there's a lot of clumsy dialogue that that got um that got cut out. Um, but I think you have that theme of invasion carrying through the whole way, right? After you have that fade of the, the first title card, you have the FBI agents all moving in on that, that house that they, that they raid. Um, and you got, I mean, there, there's other stuff I want to talk about just in the way that people push their bodies onto other, other people's bodies in this so movie, much which of is this an ongoing is, visual trope. Yeah. So, so um, much of this movie is um, non-dialogue action. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's the way somebody's sitting. It's, it's, you know, like when we get to the scene that, that I picked, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things that they do that are so subtle. It's no, little noises, uh, small actions, but a lot of it is, is body language. And, and, and that, that kind of stands through the whole film. You know, mm-hmm. you, you, we have whole sections of this film that are silhouetted. So you're really only seeing the context of the body based of, of a person based on what's around them. Um, mm-hmm. and, and as they as they move into places they're not supposed to be, so it's a lot about exerting power, and um, and kind of the what I find the other thing I find really striking is it's not just the 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 sort of asserting of power and and the physical space of of given people, and we can get into the specifics of course, but it's the whole um, it's the it's the comfort that they're they're able to show this huge disparity between. Kate, who they introduce at the top of the film as being yeah, yeah. sharp, uh, you know, kind of By the best of the class, um, quick, yeah. uh, capable of violence, like not not a mm-hmm. not a Clarice Starling, some somebody further down the line in their in mm-hmm. their career in their in their comfort with kind of violence and what they think is reality, and then they're shown mm-hmm. big reality and these kind of monsters that exist within that space and are totally comfortable with the stakes with the outcomes. Uh, you know, nothing happens in this movie that seems to upset uh, uh, Josh Brolin's character. Uh, That's the thing. He's not. He's not even just grimly comfortable. He's not. He's not Alejandro. He's not this ghost with a mission. He's arguably he's, entertained by a lot of it. 
he thinks it's funny, right? Like, and, and again, like, like all the actors in this movie, he doesn't have to have that many lines to get across the real um, disturbing nature of this guy's outlook, right? Because he also, he doesn't have this backstory like Alejandro mm-hmm. where he, he's, on, he's on this ongoing revenge plot. It's the only thing keeping him going. He's, he's, doing, he's, he's doing his day job. Right, which means flying around, um, you know, uh, uh, skirting the rules the as much as he can, and shaking the tree, and 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 killing anyone who gets in the way, because that's the way it works. I think I think this um, is really epitomized in the one of the first visual observations that Kate makes. Uh, obviously, Kate's played by Emily Blunt, and she, when they summon her initially to meet with, uh, I believe it's a group of DEA superiors and people much higher up than her. And they're discussing her mm-hmm. potential involvement, and she looks down and sees that uh, Brolin's character Matt is wearing sandals or flip flops, mm-hmm. and it's very clear just in the way her eyes pan down or tilt down and kind of observe this that she is kind of in the dark as like as we as an audience are as to what this guy's motivations are, what mm-hmm. his uh, like where he draws the line. I guess is immediately yeah. a question that comes up in your head when he is so laissez-faire about everything mm-hmm. yeah i mean that that scene's a great introduction to the way this movie treats exposition and it really sets you up for the position that you and kate are going to be in throughout the entire movie is knowing very little right the yeah, dialogue like a glass wall between you and them, what's actually them at but he, when they call her in, they ask her, Matt just, uh, Brolin's character, Matt Graves, ask her a bunch of questions that they know she won't have the answers for. It's, do you know who Manuel Diaz is? Do you know his brother? Do you know his cousin? She doesn't know any of this stuff. And then, are you married? Like, do you have any attachments? And then uh, and then gets rid of her. And, and the other thing I really love about that scene, even though it's not one of the ones we're bringing to the potluck, is her superior, Jennings, played by Victor Garber, when he he's almost yelling at her to to like with his eyes to not accept this assignment he's going to think very carefully about this you have to volunteer to be on an interagency i think this guy knows that like she's not going to come back the same from this no matter what she sees she's either going to end up like matt graves or she'll end up a husk she'll end up a victim of this process yeah and i i would say that he's he's also attempting as delicately as he can given his position and and being surrounded by people that are clearly quite powerful and arguably Matt as the most powerful because mm-hmm. the guy's not even sitting up straight. He's got his dumb sandals on. He's very clearly operating outside the scope of normal lines between one mm-hmm. governmental body and another and, and military bodies and things like that. Um, and, and I think he's trying to say like, you know, think really carefully because there's more here than I can explain to you and then you're going to be able to see immediately... Um, and he just can't say that openly. Like he can't say like you're essentially going to be a pawn, so that they can mm-hmm. keep the big dangerous pieces moving, um, and and yeah. doing things quietly and and kind of behind your back. And because she is such uh, an intelligent character, her disintegration into this lifestyle is almost immediate. It's almost in, like as soon as that first mission starts, she is confused and concerned with the operation uh there's not really ever a point where she's ever caught up to what the plan is so it's difficult to Mm -hmm. fully judge uh her moral actions but she does seem to be the central moral compass of the film for us as audience members she is our protagonist in our way in to these dark operations 
Yeah. Yeah, she's our POV. And then the, the other thing is, is you know, Matt and Alejandro, they they actually know the exact end point. They know what happens at mm-hmm. the end of the movie. because yeah. And they're literally just looking for roads to get there. Liter- literal yeah. roads, passageways. Yeah. yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, and that, and that's the thing. Like they, there is not a single, really sequence in the in the movie that Kate is involved in, that where she doesn't find out what it is after the fact or in in situ, right? So like the scenes that we're going to talk about today, it's not until they're in the thick of it that they understand what the rules of engagement are or what's actually okay. Um, when she is uh, seduced by someone who then tries to kill her, she doesn't know till after the fact, but Alejandro and Matt knew ahead of time, is constantly her just playing catch-up, and by proxy, the audience and, really and that, leaves you off kilt. And that goes back to the very first scene in the film where she enters as, like, the leader of this DEA SWAT team. I think... I, FBI. F- sorry. this Kidnapping response, yeah. I thought she was DEA. Oh, no, she's, she is kidnapped response. You're right. I thought it was FBI, yeah. No, uh, Matt, sorry, Matt. No, I, I, guys I, I, of yes. uh, DEA joint strike. DEA is involved at some point, but yeah, there's a real hodgepodge of agencies here, and that's what she's just working for. working together yeah. to do what they want. And yeah, she's a you know FBI is domestic, CIA is not allowed to operate within borders without a, an attaché. Um, but as you were saying, in that very first scene where they go in that house, I do love the idea that. It's this moment of violence that uncovers what's just beneath the surface of this very, very dark, sick um, setting that they're in, right? This guy tries to shoot Kate with a with a shotgun, blows a hole in the drywall, and they realize that there's 30 bodies um, hidden just, just underneath uh, the surface of this house. And right? I think the fact that Kate is never caught up to the plot we kind of are trained as an audience to figure that out pretty early in the film and she, that she's kind of being kept in the dark. And that I think leads to mm. the amount of tension that we as an audience feel increasingly throughout the film. Yeah. Because we, we know that Kate doesn't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I do think it, it draws up a really interesting discussion on what it means to be an audience surrogate, because I do think, you know, you could, you could write about what's going on here in terms of Kate is required in terms of her role as 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 a um, uh, a member of a domestic agency that allows the CIA to do what they want to do in this case, and I like thinking about the way that this movie, whatever it's achieving, requires an audience. Right? It's almost like they are calling in a witness or an observer, if only to show how useless that is. Because I I I think you know you said that Kate's our moral compass, and I think that's absolutely true. But I think she gets a little bit infected. In this process, Absolutely. because at a certain point, at a certain point, Reggie, played by uh, Daniel Kaluuya, uh, phenomenally, Fantastic. just tells her, like, we're not we're not a part of this. We can just leave. And then they don't have a domestic agency attached and they're screwed. And she goes, no, I have to see. I have to I, I, I need to know. Right. It's that that weight of knowledge, that um, that burden of knowledge where at the end she's not she doesn't even think that they're going to achieve anything she just has to be there for it. it i also i would also argue that that she that they very accurately and throughout most of the film con her pretty well so i think there's always yeah. this doubt where and when she's given an out all right just leave i didn't tell you to be here like i'll find somebody else like you or whatever um mm-hmm. she's always like well am i walking away from a chance to make a real difference yeah well, I mean, I guess that's true. The the real apple or the carrot that's dangled the whole movie is that you're going to get back at the people who who 
who did this at the beginning, who, who actually hid these bodies, charge, and yeah. then and then and then you know set off a bomb that killed a bunch of your of Phoenix uh, PD. Yeah, and it comes and, up a couple times. Like, do you think we're making a difference here? Yeah. Um, and, well, and of course, I mean, people are kind of like down on it. Like, no, we yeah. we just we lock these guys up, and they're entry level dudes, and they just kind of clog up mm-hmm. the system and the rest of it. And they're saying, well, this is your chance to take out somebody on the top. Yeah, and yeah. it's not until Alejandro is is right direct on route to his task. Uh, Kate's got two two bullets in in her uh, in her vest, and she comes back where he he points out that like we're just we're we're mixing things up so that we can control it a little better. We're never going to solve this, so we may as well be on top. Yeah, yeah. Um, and 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 with that, we can circle back around. But I did just want to say we've we've skipped a number of our normal sort of steps in the process here. Um, but I did, uh, when you brought that up, James, I did want to say the tagline for this movie is the border is just another line to cross, which I think is a fine tagline. It's a little <laughs> cheeky. Um, I, I would suggest, uh, just, uh, Victor Garber's line itself. Uh, are you getting the vibe that we're winning? Feel, feels a little bit, a little bit more accurate to yeah. me. I, I, I like that line. Uh, although the, the line about the border does kind of come back to what you were saying earlier about Villeneuve's kind of reappropriation of the script or reassessment of the script, and I, I guess is the best way to say mm-hmm. it, just the way that he kind of removed this fear-mongering context of we don't want to become like the other side of the border and instead blurred the lines of the border mm-hmm. where it's unclear what the difference even is geographically and that there's just an invisible line that we humans have put in the sand here. And that kind of touches back to a lot of what we talked about in our what was our sixth episode of the podcast and Alessandri yeah, and Villeneuve's yeah. obsession with interrogating the idea of border situations and scenarios because it appears to be of tremendous interest to him that we place these boundaries down in geographical landscapes that are virtually the same. Yeah, there's definitely a lot in the film about um, immigration and kind of what what life is like on one side of the border versus the other and and mm-hmm. you know i think they even show you again i don't i don't know that it directly plays into the the you know scenes that we've brought but they show you the life of someone who works in a in a semi powerful sort of scenario with the cartel this police mm-hmm. officer who clearly has an important job uh, uh, for them and a, and a, thank you silvio yeah. who i you know and, and a really kind of very beautifully detailed little vignettes about his life and existence. And I, I don't know mm-hmm. if that's, if we're supposed to feel like he's kind of the cartel for Kate or Kate for the cartel, or is he more of a Matt? Like I, don't, I always kind of wonder what the direct contrast was. Obviously there's a, a character payoff at the end, but they show you so much more about his kind of life and existence. And, and I think a lot of that is to establish just, just the Delta that um, could be meters from one side of, mm-hmm. of the border to the other makes. Right. Yeah, I think Silvio, to me, operates as, like, the micro little example, just some texture and some context for us for every time a, you know, every time one of the cartel gangbangers is, you know, killed at the border or any of the bodies left in in Alejandro and Matt's wake, any one of them could be this guy, could be this guy who is not, I love that he's not this ideal Juarez citizen he's not a good guy cop who gets caught in the crossfire he's just trying to make he's he's dirty too but yeah he's trying to make ends meet and he is everything to his son he is this hero he's so important to his son his son's got him for the day to play soccer 
he's his son i love the stuff where he's like he's like mom make make eggs for dad he's he need he needs to eat we got to go play soccer like I, I i like that there's a lot of they don't make this you know kind of ridiculous character for you to feel bad for the mexican people or the residents of juarez he's he's got all his own shades but he's still at the end of the day you know that kid that kid doesn't have a father anymore yeah. and it's just a little bit of context for yeah you. i don't think making him into a character would be very like a heroic kind of character type would be very genuine on the film's behalf. Um, I don't think making him a complete dirtbag would do the same either, but putting him in this blurred middle ground where we are pretty unsure about most aspects of this character's life. He doesn't say a whole lot about his job and what he does. Mm. That's corrupt as a corrupt police officer. But, you know, we get little bits of moral information that he does seem to have, a good like an interesting relationship with his son maybe not a healthy one but he does care for him and then when that quick moment i think is super important when he tells him not to touch his gun ever is just mm-hmm. like don't yeah. be like me kind of moment and yeah. it's subtle yeah. enough that it just puts that point in the audience's head and you know that he also ends up existing as sort of another token to alejandro's revenge like yes. alejandro got in yeah. got in this to avenge a few people's lives and how many people died to to and and I think it's it's that ends justify the means, but at this very sort of uh, like one abuse of of power and and position and the rest of it to make to make mm-hmm. what he feels is you know leveling the playing field uh, for you know yeah. for a, what what sounded like from the movie to be a, essentially a singular act of business in in you know Mexico. Yeah, and I mean, like, this the way that they treat Silvio's character that Villeneuve does is, again, uh, I think a great example of, of improving upon the script. The script went into more detail about how this guy was kind of slimy, about how his wife, his wife who just, like, she gives him this this nasty look in the one scene because he's putting he's putting some, some booze into his morning coffee. In the script, it's you get, obviously, with scripts, you get to do the internal thoughts and stuff like that, and there's a lot about his wife despising him because he's a dirty cop and that his son doesn't know he's a dirty cop but he loves him anyway all this sort of unnecessary stuff that again i think comes out in the edit as being far far more vague and far more simple and ineffective uh for it. yeah i think the way that they present his character ultimately with him dying at the hands of uh alejandro, alejandro. Uh, that adds a personal stakes for audiences at that moment in the script but also just like the conclusion like we do come back to the the mother and uh, the son at the soccer game at the very end of the film i believe it's like the last Mm -hmm. shot and i think it leaves us in this kind of state like it it puts it in perspective from a mexican local perspective that it's like this is the consequence these are like the everyday consequences that uh, are kind of swept under the rug that I don't know. If you didn't get a special focus on this particular character, it would be as if he didn't even exist in this world. Yeah, they really drive up the point that yeah, on the on the southern side of the border, the people living in Juarez, they 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 have to stop soccer games when they hear gunfire, but if they figure out that it's far enough away or it doesn't have to do with them, then the game game goes back on. It's a way of life. Uh very bleak. Yeah, the, uh, this this movie, this movie as a whole, <laughs> incredibly bleak. Yeah, I guess that's and, that's uh, the metaphor of that last scene, right? It's like that life goes on. Mm-hmm. And that this death of a police officer is not enough to stop the life in Juarez. Mm-hmm. 
But uh, with that, I mean, I'm sure we could talk at the high level uh, for a couple hours about this, but we can we can jump into one of our three scenes that we're doing today. And I think we went chronological last time, and that, that, that works for me as well this time. Uh, so I think we'll start with yours, James. All the, right, let's scroll through the document. Here we go. Yeah. <laughs> We've only got nine or ten pages on Google Docs. Yeah. This is uh, for this movie. <laughs> well, this is a pretty big scene, so. Yeah, I you know I think this became kind of the defining scene of this movie in a lot of people's memory. And if you go back and watch it, I think there's a good reason for that. But there's some pretty strong competition as well. Um, you know, Deacon, in my opinion, is best at dusk or dawn, and and that we we get that in this film for sure. But this is broad daylight, which I think adds to the tension. Uh, I, I waited for a long time to pick a scene. I wanted to make sure you guys at least had an option to take this one, uh, but I ended up taking the bridge scene, which is what I would call it. Other, you know, other people call it the um, um, the sort of uh, uh, convoy scene. Uh, so yeah. basically, this starts at thirty one forty seven, and for the purposes of um, of today's discussion, I think it would go to thirty seven fifty four. You could you could make the case that it starts much earlier than this when when um, kind of on the first thing that that Matt has Kate tag along with is a briefing about uh, prisoner extraction, um, which mm-hmm. she believes is going to be somewhere else in El Paso, and then it turns out no, they are going to subvert the border uh, in a, a bunch of big black SUVs, go into Juarez, um, take a pe- take a prisoner out of the detention center. Uh, Bring him back to the states so they can, you know, very gently talk to him. I'm sure. And mm-hmm. um, I, in my mind, uh, to keep it simple, I wanted to start basically once they leave with the prisoner. So they're now they've left the relative safety of this uh, this area, but they're they're they are a moving powerhouse of Delta guys and Alejandro and and you know operators, people who are ready to kind of shoot at the drop of a hat if that's what it comes to. And mm-hmm. they're moving, and this is where the, the, the movie really starts to rely on things that are extraneous to dialogue. So you get these glances from various people, and then you see uh, Kate, and they're starting to establish that things are going to happen, and you're going to see what Kate thinks about it, and then you're going to see how she responds. And that basically mm-hmm. informs all of the scene that I'm talking about. Um, they drive through the city heading back towards the border. They're being um, kind of tailed by uh, by the state police, which Ali Harder had previously warned Kate about. Don't trust them. Um, mm-hmm. So that's that's different than the guys in the trucks that are driving them. It's it's the guys that are in one of these kind of beat up old Crown Vicks. Yeah, they call uh, it like a ch- they call them like a spotter or something, right? Right, right. Yeah. So and and all along from several minutes before this scene starts they made it very clear that if something was going to happen it would be on the bridge at the border when we come back and they've established this a couple times and now they're driving directly into an ambush right and uh, nobody could care less except for kate which i think is a fabulous part of this scene it really adds to the idea that kate and by by that metric us we're off balance everyone else is in their element and I think mm-hmm. nobody, as uh, Alejandro's great, he's very quiet in this scene um, up until he eventually tells Kate to pull her gun. Um, mm-hmm. But the, the, this whole development of tension, if you have a character that you attach to, it's because Kate is sitting um, behind the driver's seat and loosely facing Jeffrey Donovan, who's in the, the passenger seat of the front of the vehicle. And I'm yeah. a huge Donovan fan, and I think this <laughs> is my, one of my favorite appearances by this guy. He's so good he's ice cold but he's almost a little bit entertained 
Like he's been mm-hmm. it, almost like he's been bored all day, and he's finally got something to do. And yeah. and you know he's they've got you know M4s for big guns, and he's you know sets it up on the dashboard. They immediately are giving the audience as um you know not non sequitur audio uh uh the ability to hear the radio chatter between the various four or five vehicles. Mm-hmm. What else I think is really interesting before we get into the actual flow of this is you don't hear Matt in any of this. And, yeah. and, and this is where my, my whole theory that like Matt is the chess player and Alejandro and everyone else are pieces on the board. He's just mm-hmm. sitting back and seeing how the, how the enemy essentially responds to what he's put in the field. Um, mm-hmm. and, and with complete confidence that the only people who are going to die are what, what he would term or see as the bad guys. Right. Um, yeah, he never gets out of the vehicle during, during the set. I mean, vaguely, like barely attempted attack. Mm-hmm. Um, he doesn't need, I don't see him raise a weapon either. He's just sitting next to the prisoner and he gives him like a look at one point as they're pulling away. Like that, like that's it. Like that's, that's, just, that's you, exactly what we expected. Like I it wasn't even this? close. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the, yeah. they're traveling towards the border. Then uh, you hear from a, a helicopter and I think it's cool that they, they always give you the God view throughout a several mm-hmm. points in this film, whether it's drone or helicopter. Um, but they give you the, the God view and the guy says, oh, you know, there's a stalled car ahead. It's going to take a while to clear up. So they compress in and they go, all right, well, you know, let's let's start let's start looking at what this is. And yeah. I, for me, the audience is essentially like the, the, we are given all of the tactical information just by the chatter on the radio. And I think that mm-hmm. adds a certain like amount of detail that if they just started shooting in again, if a different director had done this under a different sort like the scene could have just been a firefight that went on for four or five minutes. Yeah couple people we didn't know got killed on our side and all the bad guys on the other side got killed but it's like mm-hmm. the antithesis of that it's this razor sharp um uh, you know it's like you know, jazz the the notes you're not playing they they skip mm-hmm. a lot of notes that would be played if this was an action movie and mm-hmm. so the yeah. audience is given all this they get helicopter reports they get the group radio but all of it and they keep reattaching to kate's eyeline whether it's mm-hmm. her eyes so that you can understand how stressed she is or she's saying like what are we doing yeah. here that sort of stuff, and then she's not she's not rising to the scenario. Everybody else is prepping weapons and considering the rules of engagement and these sorts of things. And then instead of an action where you'd have people shooting, running, then other people shooting, then other people running, and you know hundreds of cuts in a couple minutes, trading cover and things yeah. Like that. So instead of that, you have um, you, you basically have to sit in Kate's discomfort with what's happening and how how mm. kind of scary that is because you already know that she's like a tactical operator you you've seen her shoot a guy that tried to blow her head off with a shotgun in the first scene and um and so much of the action in this is like the beats of them prepping to actually do something so I, mm-hmm. in my mind the the the, the really condensed quote-unquote action segment starts when ellie hunter tells her to pull out her service weapon um mm-hmm. then they then they highlight the cars so they show you the two bad guys which are it's two yeah. old cars full of really nasty looking well, yeah dudes. one one's red one's green yep. it's very easy to track and then also like a bunch of the guys in the cars have like the scalp tattoos they go they like, go all out so on, easy to yeah. tell apart from from your other people at the border crossing yeah and then just in case you're not sure just how high the stakes are they give you an in-car cut to the guy holding his weapon just below the eye line of the door 
Uh, so you know mm-hmm. that these guys are strapped. That you know that something's going to happen, and it's very clear that everybody except Kate is perfectly comfortable with this outcome. I like. So the, then you uh, get. Sorry, I like the first guy who gets out of the car and is just like doesn't say anything, but he's just like visually like torn apart. He's so he's so stressed. His face, he's so amped, yeah. his face yeah. is just yeah. looks like it's being pulled in two different directions, and that that guy yeah. deserves some credit. That scene is so intense. And so I, I think the whole thing, there's so much in this one little scene that's about the contrast between these guys that are operating with impunity and, and people who are kind of in this because it's life or death for them from when they woke up that morning. Yeah. Right. So that these, that's the other mm-hmm. people in the car. And then with, with Kate, she's just like bewildered by the fact that this is happening around her. This is breaking all the rules that she would have been taught in the FBI as far as engagements and, and what you could do at a board, what you could even get away with at a border and the rest of it. Mm-hmm. And you, then you have, um, uh, Jeffrey Donovan rolls his window down, which should not count as a beat in a Sh- piece of action. Shouldn't matter. Yeah, <laughs> but it, it's so it's so purposeful, and he he does it without breaking his eye line with the vehicles. He's got his gun resting in front of him, and he lowers the window so you're not going to shoot through the glass. I, I want to feel the breeze. Mm-hmm. I want to have a little bit more mo- mobility. Mm-hmm. Alejandro um, extends the stock on his, you know, kind of smaller weapon, so that you get mm-hmm. that click right, and almost like racking a gun. But this isn't a movie that does the like rack for effect they, they really yeah, they really say, s- I think, skip some of those i yeah i think the closest they get to that is actually in, in tay's scene the one guy he draws a he draws a knife and it makes a knife noise and i was like okay well <laughs> like it's like it came yeah. out of a metal that's, sheath that's, yeah. yeah which you know not knives don't do and it wouldn't be particularly effective as a as a covert <laughs> uh way to attack somebody but sorry yeah yeah no um and then you're saying, yeah, like Alejandro, like he extends the stock and he raises the barrel past Kate's yeah, head. Yeah, he paints her, which um, I mean, you, you're going to yeah. do in a car. But if you're if you're like yeah. a special forces nerd, uh, you'd go, oh, uh, <laughs> you probably would you, you'd that. avoid that. But in <laughs> yeah. this scenario, yeah. these guys are such high level. Um, and then and then they identify guns. They can see that somebody in one of the other cars has weapons. So now we've ratcheted up again um, immediately over the radio. They go, what are the rules? And they go, we have to be. Uh, we have to be engaged to engage and they go okay and then uh can we stay in the car nope you can't and then he unlocks the door which is just a click a door lock everybody Mm -hmm. knows that sound what a door lock and like it and it's just terrifying (laughs) gets you (laughs) it's so good um and then uh, basically here you're seeing professionals just preparing for what they know what to do and every time they make a little preparation kate gets more uncomfortable like she's trying to find a way to distance herself from this or to slow it down She's trying to understand what they're all thinking this is going to be. And I think this is one of the few times where the audience, you go like, well, they're, they're going to start shooting. It's going to get real bad, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you can see that she's worried, whereas they're patient. And then, I mean, the, the, the first uh, kind of aggressor from the other side, uh, the kind of cartel dude, cracks his door, and they immediately flood out in, in two teams. One car goes to the one, mm-hmm. one goes to the other. And this is interesting because you get um, they don't they don't show you the outcome of these two standoffs interlaced. They're shown separated mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because it, it allows you again for a moment. You think, oh, maybe the second car, they'll stay in the car and they won't have a fight. Right. And that you even get a moment where you see Donovan, who's lead. He's right on the front nose of the vehicle. He's telling them like, no, no, calm, stay calm. Mm-hmm. Don't do this. Don't do this. And then yeah. he just turns to walk away. And he starts to pull his eye away when the guy opens, and then it's five rounds, and everybody in the car is dead. That 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 shot over Donovan's shoulder, mm-hmm. where I think he takes out three of them in it's maybe a second and a half shot, is just like the. I mean, 
just on the the production, like how quickly you're you're, you're having the glass bust, you're having the squibs go off, yep. and you you have I'm assuming Donovan, or if not someone, you know they're they're shooting him from behind, and they have someone who's a little bit more trained, really like lining up those shots and making making all those the four or five different systems you have at play, let alone the camera itself, all line up perfectly. Yep. Um, both those both those explosions of action, both the cars getting shot up, one by Alejandro, one primarily by Donovan and his team. I just love how, like, almost the rest of this entire sequence, your average shot length is probably two seconds. And then when they're shooting, it's like five shots in a second, and it's over, yep. right? Yep. And I love, like, the one with Alejandro, they marry it. But from the same shot of Benicio del Toro, where he's looking forward, he's saying, um, "Do you want to die?" Compass. He's saying, "In peace." And yeah, do you want to die? And then all the shots go off, and they come back to him. And he puts his hand up, and he's kind of like, all right, we did. "Like, like, Ugh, all right. well, well, <laughs> had to happen." Yeah, it's, right? his tri- it's his trigger hand. It's this little like, this little like, yeah. man, you made you made you made this happen. Yeah, yeah. And it's so it's it's so fast without being too fast to I think um, perceive mm-hmm. what's going on. I think it's. The the editor from this, I don't have his, their name right in front of me, but they edited Steve McQueen's movies, okay. and I oh. think the 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 editing the editing is is incredible, yep. especially in these moments where it's it just has to be fast right yep. then because we've been building up to this for at least six minutes, let alone like, probably what, 20, twenty minutes. minutes. Yeah. Yeah. So you see, if you if you roll it back just a little bit, they open the door. This is the only time that Kate tries to assert any control. She says, "Wait, wait, wait." Mm-hmm. Uh, all Alejandro says is, "Get out of the car." Uh, and instead, she slides over to his seat to try and even further distance herself from what's happening. And then it's a lot of mm-hmm. establish um, the 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 you know special forces guy do something, and then you see Kate's face. Establish a scene, special forces guy do something. You see Kate's face, and each mm-hmm. time that after you see Kate's face, you see her eye line out back out the vehicle, so you can kind of see the distance that she's judging. And then mm-hmm. the third time, yeah. you get you get the payoff. So. Um, uh, you know, the first car gets shot after he says, you want to die? And the guy tries to pull the second thing we talked about with with Donovan and his team. And then it cuts back to uh, Kate's view. And and once you see her reacting, I think, you know, she says, you know, what are we doing here or something like that? Um, th- then you get her eye line. And that's where you see in the mirror, the federale, the, the state police officer that's just about mm-hmm. to kill her. And she goes, she yeah. dives down and then comes back up, returns fire and kills him. And then and then it's like, all right, well, now I'm part of this. Uh, that's such an unnerving such a, shot. Yeah, oh yeah, the 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 first person where you see the the Estada uh, uh, police just walking up, it's a little it's like pointed directly. First at the person, there's too. there's a little, but like her 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 vision is a little like shaky. Obviously, she's very stressed. Like it's it's again, it's this little one second clip, and I think it's so effective at r- just ratcheting it up one more step, yep. right? And and again, like. Her doing this as a reaction, not not an action, not like the uh, not like everyone else. Yeah, it wasn't firing proactive. in that scene. Yeah, yeah, you can um, see her and, her police background more in that sequence because she doesn't the reflex. Yeah, yeah, it's the reflex shooting, not like preemptively shooting, because obviously, mm-hmm. like the Estada shoots first. So uh, once again, mm-hmm. just kind of contrasting her more police oriented approach to the yeah like outwardly militaristic i also think there's some and this is what i what i was saying at right at the top about the specificity of the way denny does these things is think about think about the you because i think you guys can remember this scene in your mind when alejandro approaches the car 
he approaches with his weapon pointed almost directly at the camera. Yes. And when Donovan yeah. comes in on the car, he approaches with the camera with the weapon pointed right at the camera. So you're in the car, or you are that the, those those aggressors. And um, mm-hmm. and when they do the the Emily's face, uh, when they do uh, Kate's face, Kate's mirror, and she turns. The turn is over her shoulder, and the the gunman is pointing directly into directly into the camera when he fires. The bullet yeah. had it been a bullet would have hit the camera. Right. Um, mm-hmm. and, and then that gives her the ability to leave front frame, slide back up and, and return fire in, in what would have been, you know, a pretty dodgy scenario, uh, to try and try and shoot back. And then a split second after that, one of the, the Delta guys spins and puts two rounds in the yeah. guy as he goes down. So mm-hmm. I love that. Like, you know, she's, she's a part of this too, mm-hmm. right? Like all these things. And of course in self-defense, but again, she, she fired a bullet on a, on a, you know this this area full of civilians, yep. full of non-combatants. All these things she she is she is marked by this yeah. in some way. She participates. Yeah, and there's a, a there's a little spice of like uh, the undercover cop having to go into a bank robbery and actually punch a teller. Right. Yeah. You know what I mean? There's like a, a like where you're like, oh, I'm I'm kind of soiling my soul a little bit if I got to pull. If if I not only did I agree to do this, and then of course she doesn't have the context that they're able to do it because of her. Uh, what's mm-hmm. what's happening in front of her is like legal because she's there, sort of. Um, legal is a very strange concept in this film, but yeah. <laughs> what I like about that though is that it doesn't really allow Kate or you as an audience to have time with her after. As contemplative as the movie is, you don't like get to like wallow with her in her sadness or her emotions about what just happened because she is almost like numbed by this whole yep. sequence based mm-hmm. on how she talks with Reggie after the sequence where she's basically giving him one word answers. Well, and I mean like the way that the, the people with agency in this movie, the way that Matt and Alejandro consider that Matt, they get out of the car is at the end of the sequence. And Matt goes, which is, um, you know, a disgusting disdain for, for what he considers like, yeah, it was clean. You know, we didn't lose any of our guys. We didn't lose our prisoner. Mm -hmm. Um, but they left, you know, nine bodies on the on the border. It, you know, I think this movie doesn't do a lot of exposition outside of what you're fed through Kate's uh, POV. But mm-hmm. you do get you do get the back and forth between I don't. Well, I guess the replying name, the replying voice is, is Matt's. But someone says this is going to make the national papers. Right. And Matt replies yeah. kind of and this is off camera. You just see them kind of dragging a body out of the way and getting back into the cars. Mm-hmm. And he replies, this won't even make the papers in El Paso. And I don't know if he's yeah. saying that, like, you don't understand how worthless th- what we just did was, like how mm-hmm. non-important this was to, to Mexico or whatever. Or if he's saying, like, we're so powerful, this we're just going to suppress it. I don't know which it is we either. Don't, we don't end up in the paper. I, I don't know. And, like, I think it's very effective for that to be left unclear. Absolutely. Because it, they, they do show that there is a lot of power because on their way to the border, they have the line where he's like, our guys at the border are just waving everyone through. Yep. Right? So I, I love the idea that, like, the border and border control is so important, but they're like, well, you need this prisoner through throw just so like permeable wave through dozens of cars. Cause oh, we're, we're priority right now. And it's only because, you know, the, uh, the cartel set up a, a busted car up at the front yep. that they're able to, to sort of turn into a choke point. So, and, and in terms of that, I do want to talk about just a couple of the ways that this, um, sequence ratchets up the tension. And I do love that helicopter shot. Yep. Because it takes its time. It's I think the focal length really kind of gives you a lot of parallax. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. And you're just kind of like, wait, how many cars from the border are they? 
and it goes just a little bit longer than you think before you get to the convoy and you're like oh that's yeah they're in it <laughs> that's uh that's worrying and like you and you combine that with how many times people have been like if it's going to happen it's going to happen at the border mm-hmm. and then the other thing i want to talk about was in this this full sequence if we were doing the full you know 20 minutes or so they bring the music in when they're going into Juarez, and that's Johan Johansson's uh, piece, The Beast, right? Which is how they refer to... I don't think they do it in the movie. Again, in the script, someone says, like, we're going into The Beast, right? It's it's way more on the nose. Um, but it's this great musical sting that, I guess, uh, Villeneuve said he wanted something with a sort of animalistic character, and he said, he said like, think somewhere along the lines of Jaws yeah, and yeah. Jaws' musical sting. Yeah. Yeah. And Johansson, the 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 motif is just like a descending cello line. But I think I remember seeing a video a long time ago where he got it's like thirty cellos at once, and they all have a little bit of disparity in where they start and how quickly they descend. So there's a little bit out of tune. I think it's a little bit disorienting. You know, it's a little slimy, but they all end at the same place. They all go down into whether you want to say that they're all going down into Juarez, or I think way more concerning is like they are you're seeing what these guys Matt's are world. and what they and what they do yeah, Matt right and Alejandro's like, world you know if you want to say Matt now Alejandro or the beast it's not really Juarez I you know I, I think that'd be fair and then well, or the they bring the beast is you know American foreign policy yeah. and and mm. the fact that they can kind of do whatever they want <laughs> do it domestically too I love the um, ambiguity and then I love so they they bring they they after that they cut the music for a while right as as sort of Kate learns what Juarez is like and you see some of the atrocities on the street and then they have they 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 pick up the prisoner and they go back and the music doesn't come back until they're stuck at the border and I love the cue lines up with this dog barking and it just immediately like starts starts you sweating right the the music is very effective the dog is kind of like a bit of an alarm Mm -hmm. you're getting worried and then they start spotting the cars you know that they're trapped and then and then there's blunt's performance which i think really walks a nice line in the script kate is way more like she's supposed to be visibly terrified and i like that blunt she keeps it together for the most part kate kate is enough of a professional that clearly she's out of her element but she's not like having a panic attack or hyperventilating yeah there's just enough stress there's no like the dialogue isn't presented like she's in a panic because she's a very composed and very good at her job. But we see her kind of become unraveled physically. Like she becomes sweatier and more jittery throughout the scene. And it's not like mm-hmm. th- the script. I don't know. You can maybe attest to this, Tim, but I don't feel like there was a lot in there for that. That was taken out. I think this was supposed to be her observing and reacting and that was how the scene was kind of meant to be built. Yeah, I mean, yeah, to to Sheridan's credit, because I do think probably over the course of this episode, I'm going to make it sound like I'm ragging on the script. I think script scripts by nature, again, you get that interior look into people's minds, you can hear their thoughts, and you have to write, I think scripts probably to be successful as products that directors want, they have to be written a bit more bigger, right? Probably, they, they have to they have to catch your attention a little bit. And it's to Villeneuve's credit that he knew what to leave behind and what to what to get into. Yeah. Um, but largely the sequences, like this one, like Tay's scene, um, 
not so much the the scene with with Bernthal at the bar, but the sequences are are very much intact. They operate in almost the same way. This one had had a third car, uh, an expedition, an SUV, on the border, but otherwise they operate in really the same way. You're seeing these guys seamlessly and very calmly control the situation and ratchet it up and then take action at the exact second that they have to and then walk away from a pile of bodies. Yeah, and I, you know, I think um, I, I put it in the notes and, and I think you guys both said that you'd watched it. A, a great YouTube channel called Cinefix does a pretty solid breakdown of how the beats uh, for the, the raising of the tension pay off. And, and the interesting thing is they're, they're very careful to note that like, in to their mind, the this sequence is more like 13 to 14 minutes long and then there's nine seconds of violence. Mm-hmm. Right, but I would describe this as like a master class in an action sense because they do so much with so little and, and it's very much a less is more thing that doesn't at all ever feel like an action movie but we just watched a bunch of like burly you know special forces sort of guys kill a bunch of people on, on a highway in, yeah. um, in between you know two part two, two, two areas of the country and um, you know, I, in some ways, this is like I was saying, like Villeneuve kind of feels like an anti-Michael Bay. It's like, how, how small can I make it, but still be mm-hmm. this sort of engaging thing that you can't forget seeing? Like, yeah. uh, you will remember a great action sequence from The Rock, you know, with the yellow Ferrari getting chased by the, or chasing the streetcar and all the Hummer mm-hmm. and the explosions and the rest of it. I, we can all remember that. But I remember this just as carefully, and there's so much less happening in this space. It's a lot of character work and it's kind of like exposition through movement and noise and it's this sort of like very careful choreography that um you know just pretty obsessed with and, and i think in many ways there's there's some parallels to the scene i had picked in 2049 where you're mm-hmm. you're seeing somebody leverage a lot of power um with the drone strikes um in mm-hmm. in a sort of callous or disinterested manner and in, in blade runner they go as far as having her have her nails done well while that's happening and then you see somebody yeah. kind of experiencing it along the path and obviously i don't think there's a lot of like um similarities between Kay's perspective and kate's perspective aside from the letters um mm. uh but I, I do think that there is some similarity in the tonality of those scenes and the way that they approach um kind of what could have been filmed or operated as like large-scale acts of violence um and instead they make it this like tight personal almost interior you you almost forget the scenes outside and, and you forget yeah. that there's other people there they don't spend much time explaining you don't even hear them say like watch your sight lines you know make sure you know what's behind you they just these guys just know what they're doing they're shooting from such a close close degree it's it's almost close quarter uh sort of stuff and yeah i i, I just think this is a movie's got some amazing scenes but this one for me has always kind of stood out you know up up there with uh with the bag scene in in collateral and stuff like that where they just the, mm. the 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 actual violence ends up being the the you know the end of a long sentence yeah it's not it's not the violence doesn't come across as gratuitous in this at all right like you're it's so fast and it's so exacting and without compromise and like i mean outside of the guy who steps up and and gets out of the car most of the guys, you don't see the targets get hit with bullets. You see the inside of the car get painted, yep. right? You see the damage to the structure, and they walk away again. Like you, you, you see the the Federale get hit too, and and see him bleeding out on the pavement. But again, I, I there there doesn't see there's there's no um, joy taken with like oh well we got the bad guys right like we we gunned them down. You, there's no nothing even approaching like a platoon shot. Yeah, and like I, I think for Matt, this is swatting a fly. 
you know, especially when how much he talks about shaking the tree and and hit getting the mm-hmm. people at the top. Like the guys that died on on the bridge, they you know died out of happenstance. They weren't important. They were of no value. Mm-hmm. I think the violence in this scene relies upon a sense of realism that the film has already established, and that helps us uh, accept the fact that there's not a firefight in this scene. It's it's very tactical and very real-world based, mm-hmm. so we understand that these are top-tier soldiers doing exactly what they've been programmed to do, uh, and I use that word intentionally um, because it feels mm-hmm. like that's what this is, like that there is no chance for the opposition. These guys... Mm-hmm are going in to do the job and they will do whatever it takes to get it done. And this is probably all acceptable for us as an audience in the mid, in the mid 20 teens because of what you mentioned earlier, James. And that's like the influence of games like call of duty, uh, the influence mm-hmm. of nine 11 and the obsession with, uh, acts of terrorism and torture and that protection. and protection yeah. that became such, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know, interests in American society and also like an increased, knowledge of militaristic activities and skills uh, are also became kind of more uh not respected but almost uh uh glorified and i think and i think that games like call of duty and then not saying like that there are people like us who watch a movie like this for its simple sense of realism and that's how I would mm. describe myself as an audience member to this. But then I think there's like a, whole, a massive audience that saw this as just another military badass film made by America to show how awesome American soldiers are. Yeah, and the lengths to which uh, America is willing to go, yeah. right? Like if, if, if there's going to be a pile of bodies, we may as well be on top of it. There's no solving this problem. There's just uh, mitigating. Yeah, so I think, yeah, and I, I think that- it walks in both circles. Yeah, and I think it's important to to, to st- think that like the this movie doesn't establish the idea that you've got to try and fight the cartel at the you know at the head, right? That that's been the tone of every movie ever about uh, the mm-hmm. the drug business, uh, whether it be from Mexico, South America, or otherwise, right? Even internal, it's always about getting to the boss. But I think it's interesting because, despite the fact that I do think that that this film benefits from a certain visual language that would be informed by video games and you know uh, counterterrorism sort of video games of uh, special ops sort of stuff um there's no mm-hmm. boss fight in this or minor boss by the fights. time we yeah so th- these th- this was this was a this was the the thing you the guy the six guys you dispatch before you go into the house to get the the nuclear codes or something to get you to the next level whatever it is um you know these are just pawns along the way and, and when you get to the end then you see like this was um i guess i see that the bridge scene as being almost like roll of the dice it worked out um that they had to fight these guys and if they did the bridge 20 minutes earlier or, or an hour later maybe they did, wouldn't whereas mm-hmm. when you get to the end the ending is so intentional they've 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 used every resource in the book to put mm-hmm. one person in front of a few other people and and to end something and it's a it's kind of an interesting thing where this feels this scene feels very callous and just like uh you know attrition essentially um, yeah. recursive attrition to a certain point and then and then to see where they go beyond this in developing what they need to get Alejandro where he wants to be by the third act yeah i do think before before we move on the one other thing i wanted to point out is just like the the tension and the tenor and the 
the height of this scene, um, I think it's wild that it occurs this here in the movie, right? It could be the set piece that your your climax hinges on. And I love that something this tense, this big, this immediate is Kate's first experience with Matt and Alejandro. It doesn't ratchet up. It does in other ways over the course of the movie, but more about what she learns in terms of action and or, or like the the actions of this joint task force however you want to call it it's immediately just throwing Kate into the deep end and I think it sets the stage for this movie being you know what are we a half hour in mm -hmm. yeah yeah well, yeah no I agree I, it's a lovely scene yeah it really <laughs> content aside <laughs> it really introduces this idea of the tension between Kate's moral responsibility and what she actually wants to do to complete the job I think this whole temptation begins in this moment Right after, or right after the scene where she realizes what they did and what they will probably have to do moving forward. Uh, I agree mm -hmm. with you guys. This scene is a standout for me. I think it's one of the best scenes of the decade. Uh, and all, all a lot mm -hmm. of the reasons that I think that you just covered there, James. So thanks for bringing that scene to the table. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Uh, yeah, and with that, I mean, we'll, we'll move right over to mine, which occurs virtually immediately after I, I cut out a little bit of in between but um i think this this scene that i that i brought to the potluck uh allows you to take a, a, a dive into the non-action aspects of this and while kate isn't in this scene we do get to talk about uh, alejandro a lot more uh very interesting character and uh, benicio de toro gives a, a phenomenal oh, yeah. very reserved very controlled performance um so i'm calling my scene the post post-border interrogation scene uh, with Guillermo successfully, if not necessarily cleanly, transported across the border, Alejandro and Matt intend to torture him for intel on the cartel's operations. Uh, prior to what we assume is waterboarding Guillermo, uh, Alejandro speaks to another Mexican prosecutor, uh, Rafael. Um, so you've just had Guillermo brought across the border in the scene we just talked about. They take him inside and, um, you know, Matt goes in this is prior to what i really want to talk about but matt goes in and uh, donovan is filling the guy's uh, belly with water he's giving him lots of drink and uh and guillermo is saying you know he, he doesn't speak english he's not going to talk to matt um and he he intimates that well there's someone else that you can talk to so we cut to the beginning of the sequence i want to talk about and that's um alejandro is uh is getting himself a, a cup of water which is a, a nice little dark joke yeah um and one of one of the one of the best lines uh, Sheridan put in the script, um, as Raphael walks up, he says, "I didn't know ghosts got thirsty." Talks to Alejandro about sort of how he helped facilitate the prisoner transfer from his side in Juarez, and then talks about Raphael's family, um, who are safe. They're living in a different area. They're not in Juarez. And then Raphael essentially just says, like, um, you know, you got to move quickly. People are not going to be where they are today in a matter of days. And then apologizes to Alejandro for what happened to him, which is another sort of hint towards his past and why he's doing what he's doing, why he's working with someone like Matt. And then um, he picks him. He picks up a five-gallon uh, thing of water from next to the water cooler, carries it in to the uh, to the detainment room. Um, at which point Donovan leaves with another one of the uh, the DEA agents, um, and uh, Alejandro really imposes his physique on Guillermo. He 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 spreads his legs apart. Guillermo's sitting in a chair. He spreads his legs apart, and 
really invades his space. He kind of has his groin right up in Alejandro's face. Um, and uh, basically, you know, Matt's in there and, and they, they, they suggest that, you know, he's going to learn what hell is in Yankee land. And then you just have this slow zoom on the drain in the floor. Um, again, I think everything points obviously towards him being waterboarded. It was very uh, topical at the time, especially you're still kind of in the wake of Guantanamo. But again, like one of the things I'm going to want to talk about is like this this scene being one of the clearest examples of the way that uh, Del Toro and Brolin and Villeneuve really weaponize all the trappings of sexual assault or rape without there actually ever being the act or the incident itself. I think it's 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 a it's a theme that's explored without it having to be depicted. Um and I, I even saw, I mean, there were lots of people online where they're like, is he being waterboarded or is there something even worse happening here? And I, 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 I think the waterboarding is very clearly um, uh, uh, telegraphed. But I think the, the way that, that Del Toro controls the space in this scene, and it's one of many examples of how somebody sort of pushes their body into another person's space, I think is just another example of this very essay worthy theme of of invasion of the way that the u.s treats other territories about how how much they they take agency away from less capable less powerful uh communities and and strictures and uh and things like that but that's sort of the breakdown of the scene there's there's lots to get into there what do you what do you two guys think about this scene i think what what stands out for me first is they've they've done this several times in the movie by this point where they've put um and we mentioned it a little bit with the body language thing, but there's also just a physical blocking to the way that they film Alejandro, especially, uh, you know, when Kate gets on the private jet, he's kind of just in the periphery hands behind his Mm -hmm. back. He doesn't dress like Matt or like a soldier, like Matt dresses like a CIA agent that was operating in the, in the middle East, uh, theater, you know, he's wearing, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of sandals and, and typically a t-shirt or, or, uh, uh, you know, like a Bush shirt of some sort, cargo shorts or pants that sort of thing and alejandro like it's a while before you see him in anything other than what you might call leisure wear a linen suit a linen suit like a tan suit yeah and it kind of gives him this like um boss vibe um Mm -hmm. and and he's got you know he's got his sunglasses on when they meet on the plane and and then you get to this and he just has this um physical presence that's very kind of crucial because as you watch the film especially when he starts operating in a more tactical sense he moves in very deliberate ways. I think it's it's part of the way they telegraph to people that he's better at this than most, that, that he is. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, there's all these comments about the ghost thing. And the ghost thing is kind of because he's imposing, but he's out of he's not really within your eye line. Not all like he's not easily matched by all five senses. Right. And so then just yeah. to see him in a hallway doing something as casual as getting a drink of water. And of course, the water is kind of a a fun joke about waterboarding the fact that he would, he could be thirsty and he's clearly come to the water thing to pick up a jug of water. And he's like, well, while I'm here, I'll mm-hmm. get a glass of water. And, yeah. um, and then in talking to this guy, I like that they contrast what, you know, cause you, you know that Alejandro in a past life was a prosecutor. Um, but, and then now you get another, another sense of, of kind of maybe he's, he lives in a sort of undead sense, right? Post family, mm-hmm post his old life he's seeing somebody from the old days that knew him and even that person calls him a ghost and that could be because he's not around anymore or they don't know if he's alive or if he's dead or because they know he's working with the cia you know where where you have spooks yeah i love that line too 
Yeah. Alejandro, I think the the character is so nicely laid out in this movie, very carefully, just piece by piece, a little bit more, a little bit more. He's got this wonderful, very interesting relationship with Kate where he's kind of caring for her and he's the only one giving her directions most of the time until at, until at whatever point she ends up being in his way and then he doesn't hesitate to, to take her out of his way. But no, yeah, by the end of the movie, you find out that Alejandro had a wife and kids. He was a prosecutor. In the script, they explain, Sheridan explains at least, that... I guess in Mexico, prosecutors do the investigation of crimes, not police officers. So they're a way more critical part of that judicial process. Huh. And that's why they'd be such a target for cartels if they're investigating the cartel. And you learn from Matt at the end of this movie that his wife and daughter were killed in front of him in very horrific ways. And that's just touched on here. I love the idea that in this first half of the sequence, he's speaking to Raphael. He's basically speaking to himself in the past. And as soon uh, as they get past cool. some some of the... Yeah, he's talking to a, to a previous version of himself. Maybe that will get lucky and won't end up like him. Or maybe they're all destined for that if they're a good prosecutor. Yep. But after they get some business talk out of the way, he says, like, how's your family? He's like, I have a wife and, and, and three kids. And he's like, are they in Juarez? That's that's kind of the main point to him. And he's like, no, they're in, I think he says they're in Monterey. Yep. And he goes, it's much more peaceful. They're out of the way. He's... He's like, you know, I'm, I'm glad for you. Your family seems safe for now. And the guy, you know, Raphael ends the conversation by saying, I'm sorry what happened for what happened to you. So it gives you all these ideas that this guy is coming from some horrible trauma. But it's not until you rewatch the movie where you really get what they're talking about there and why he would be asking about his kids. Yeah. Um, and, and, and the concern and the, the concern about the distance to Juarez. Right. Mm-hmm. No, no, knowing yeah. that this guy gets to go and be a family man and not just a Juarez prosecutor. Yeah. I think you know there there he finds some solace in that. Mm. And and you really flirt with the ideas like Alejandro uh a ma- like a maniac or is he like a decent person who's just kind of been pushed into a space outside of common morality. It really it really flirts with that idea. I think even to the very end of the film which I I saw uh, people online commenting that it was pretty unsatisfying the ending which we can debate all we want. Well, uh, you know, to that point, um, in, when we get to the end of the movie, that's not a scene that we're going to talk about specifically, but, you know, he's let loose on his own in, a, in the home of, of somebody that he's going to kill, and he mm-hmm. doesn't kill everyone. He walks right past a maid, yeah. kind of makes eyeline mm-hmm. with, uh, with someone, and, and so it's clear that I don't, think, I don't think you're supposed to believe that he's like Matt. I don't think you're supposed to believe he's a serial killer that just happened to get a good job right. uh, for, his, for his certain, you know, chemistry. Um, as much as this is this is a man that has a goal and a skill set, and he's gonna do whatever. Like if she, I, I assume if she got in his way, sure. Um, but but I, I don't. I think he still draws a line between what's who's evil, who's part of this world, and who's adjacent to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like well, it's like he's he's burdened with this. Like it's the only thing he can do, right? Like, and it and it does kind of point to him being a ghost or post life, because he will never have a normal life again, and it's just. People who point him in the direction of getting rid of the people who did yeah, the and, things to him, or people like the those people, people, right? Yeah. yeah, right. So if you think if you think he died when his family died, he didn't actually die. But if he had, if emotionally and and if his if if his sense of self died when his family died, mm-hmm. he's now operating essentially like like in, in a manner in which he's now haunting the people who did this, and and this is kind of the culmination of that at the end of the film. Yeah, I, I'm trying to think back to the first time I would have seen this movie which would have been in theaters and trying mm-hmm. to remember what this scene did for me 
for Alejandro's character arc. And I just remember going into the final scene with him, and so I'm guessing this scene painted a pretty big part of this picture, that I really didn't know what what he was going to do. I didn't know if he was going to be a good guy, a bad guy, a forgiving person. I really didn't. I remember, like, not knowing anything about this guy's moral compass until the very end. Uh, it and gives you, like, a blurred idea because it's not very clear that it is waterboarding. I don't even know if I picked it up the first time mm-hmm. I saw the film. Um, it's more obvious to me now, but I don't remember ever being like, oh, mm-hmm. this guy just tortured Guillermo. Um, but mm-hmm. yeah, so the scene does have that s- a sense of warning you without beating you over the head with it, and it does kind of allow you to take what you want into the last scenes with Alejandro, which I, th- I think is kind of cool in retrospect. Yeah. I think it also establishes a little bit of a plot of plausible deniability for the audience. Yes. Like yeah, if you were still yeah, yeah. holding out, if you're still holding out that Matt and Alejandro were operating within the normal confines of engagement for, for something like this, by not actively mm-hmm. showing them torture somebody, you're left a little bit in the dark. You don't get to see all of their motives, all of their skill set, the rest of it. And, and it kind of, it, it leads to a little bit of this ambiguousness that, that, kind of you see attached in the in the reality the real stories that came out about waterboarding scandals and things like that where people were saying like oh i didn't really know this was happening to this extent right. or this or that or it's these these chains of deniability and it starts with donovan and the other guy who's running the camera leaving the room that's right right like mm-hmm. they're everybody knows the dance here well and i mean i love again it's this it's this great little thing um in that sequence where donovan leaves he he calls over the other dea agent um, Del Toro is in focus in the foreground as they leave and they leave focus and they have the camera on the tripod and the little like recording light on the camera when it's out of focus it's even bigger right because it's being it's being spread yeah. out a little yeah. bit so it's even more obvious when they turn it off which is a little thing that I'm sure Deacons had in mind sure. and I think it works very well um, just before we move too far from it um, when you're talking about the fact that they don't show the waterboarding um Villeneuve in a in an interview with Den of Geek, he did say that like when they sort of talked about how they only really depict the violence when when necessary, but they they sort of hint at it otherwise or, or put it off screen. Uh, he said it's the power of suggestion. I think those are cinematic images because it's evocation, suggestion. It's more powerful than seeing. Mm-hmm. That's poetry for me in some ways, even if it's talking about something ugly. It's ugly poetry. Yeah, like the shot of the drain um, now does everything for me in this scene. I'm just talking. I was more yeah. referring to like the mm-hmm. first time seeing it. I don't know if I clued in. Because, yeah. And I think part of it is because you don't want to paint the charismatic Brolin and the interesting intriguing character of alejandro you don't want to you don't want them to be evil and i think that was just my my audience gut being like oh these guys are they're still something that they can prove to me that they're Mm -hmm. good morally well and and i mean that that lines up with one of the first character beats you get of alejandro number one uh, james did mention i i do love that first shot of him where you barely get to see him he's obscured by the plane after like a second in that shot kate's eyeline as well quarters turned away yeah but then they get on the plane. I think she introduces herself. She gets one of his first many non-answers. And then the flight takes off. And uh, Del Toro does this startled awake from a nightmare that really, really scares Those can Kate. be so cliche, too. Um, well, and so in the script, uh, the script uh, shows you the nightmare. Oh. It's like a first-person view view of 
the mutilated family and stuff like I'm that. I'm glad they didn't throw that. Color ruined it. Yeah. This is, and then it. This is much. This, this is, is much more. I, you know, just seeing Jaws fin in the background. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I assume the shark's so name is Jaws. Effective. That's established <laughs> yeah. at this point. Jaws. The Jaws. The shark from Jaws. Yeah. You know the the titular Jaws. <laughs> yes. That's his name. I believe yeah. Jaws's name was Bruce. We see Bruce's fin in the background. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I, I, I'm, but, I'm uh, curious. Do, then, do you guys think that there's something specific, like, I mean, actually specific, that we're supposed to get from the hold on the drain? Is that supposed to be a little bit of a rosebud uh, thing? Is, is, the, is it the idea that they can kind of wash away their sins in, in these sorts of rooms with no windows? I think it's more functional that, like, this room has a drain, and he just brought in five gallons of easy? water. Yeah. Right? I wasn't yeah. sure if there was a, a greater, That's, greater sort or, of or like, Or if you want to make a metaphor, like... America is set up to to be able to deal with the the oh, yeah. There's of an institutional support yeah. for what it's, they're doing. It's infrastructural. Yeah, and, yeah. yeah they're not. They don't um, have to go to a, a gym locker or something like that to find a no. shower stall. Yeah. Does the camera yeah. in that moment do a slight spinning rotation, or is it, or is it just? A I think zoom? it just zooms okay. in. I because think it's, it's yeah, it, it's um, more like the intentionality of that shot. Once again, it's just I'm placing it there with. It's not silence, it's ambient noise in the background. It's like the room noise. They're they're beating him or they're or they're they're restraining him or something. Yeah, you can when hear it, when it first cuts to that shot though, isn't it like pretty quiet? And then you then it jumps in it. Yeah. I think so. And then and then it gets started. Yeah, it feels right? there's something um, contemplative about it. It's it's very artsy. It, like I, I'm sure a lot of people would refer mm. to it as really artsy, but I don't know. I just like that it's not directly bashing you over the head with a, another torture scene that we really didn't need more of. Yeah, yeah, and it's mm-hmm. more of that less is more. It's a it's a light touch for a lot of this, you know, and and, and the theater of the mind sort of stuff, you know. Let, let I do I do want to say this this scene features one of the few instances where I think Denny 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 went went a little little hard in the paint and that's having uh matt is whistling like an american patriotic tune out of key as alejandro is 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 carrying the water jug it. up it's a little I on the that. nose but as a character thing i do think like matt graves would think that would be funny to to whistle like america the beautiful or the star spangled banner or 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 stars and stripes forever whatever Souza patriotic march it is that, that, he's that is how i interpreted it that he's just a really cheeky character yeah. who is uh i don't know very masochistic so I, in the yeah. sense that he knows that this will mentally torture someone as well i, I see it a little bit differently only, only that this is, i still think this is them very coyly trying to trying to lead the audience to like matt a little bit in that mm. they got a bad guy this is a dog got his bone he's happy like yeah, he yeah. he the, the the wheels are in motion and he's the guy like he put the pieces on the board he made a move he got a rook and and like mm-hmm. he's gonna sit there kind of grinning and whistling a song that 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 suggests you know his power um oh i love like he says you know i love it when they know Ablo, yeah. right mm-hmm. he's like no English. no hablo inglés it's muy malo i love it when they know hablo inglés and and I mean the other thing, just in terms of the the plot function of this scene uh, in propelling the movie, what they learn from Guillermo is what Raphael, the prosecutor, already like told um, Alejandro in the immediate scene before. He said there are rumors of a tunnel near uh, Sasaba or Sasaba. Um, 
and uh, and we think that's if if you're doing what we think you're doing, that's where you're going to want to do it. And then they water they waterboard this guy, and then they have the sequence later where they they interview the people who are just about to be deported back over the border on the buses, and they get some information there and then they're in the ho- the motel room and they, they have a throwaway line where they're like, oh, I guess Guillermo was telling the truth. <laughs> and it's like, they had that information from before the torture torture. I mean, you know, there, there's plenty you can read into about like, um, what did, what did the U S call torture in Guantanamo extended interrogation, augmented interrogation, something like that. Yeah. And about how many studies there are about if it's actually effective, right? Because at a certain point, you make someone so uncomfortable, they'll just lie to you and tell you what you want to hear. Right. Um, but I love that, yeah, they don't actually achieve anything in this scene in terms of re- acquiring intel or doing their jobs. They What they achieve is in um, uh, torturing a person, well, right? and Tur- they, Someone who's been detained on U.S. soil. It, it, it's enough, they, they get one more point of data. You yeah. Know, um, so so that they get a confirmation from the guys at the at the detainment center later on that lines up with what Raphael had suggested and then was corroborated by Guillermo. And, and like it, it gives you a little bit of the vibe that like there's this crazy sort of detective work going on and they can't mm-hmm. they can't really because when they pull the trigger, it's it's for kind of a big effect. They can't pull the trigger yeah. on something without confirmations. Um, and, and I, yeah, I, I think this is a, another just wonderful scene. Yeah. I, yeah. 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 I go ahead. I, Dave, I just sorry. was going to add to your last point, Tim, that I just found it particularly haunting that there is no conclusion to the interrogation. Like at the end of the scene, it just kind of moves into the next scene. And that's what kind of gives the, that foreboding sense of like something bad just happened. Mm-hmm. And Guillermo just disappears. Like, yeah. He's he gone went, from the movie. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I thought, I thought this, this scene was a nice counterpoint cause I knew we were, we had to do the border scene. It's nice to see the fallout of that. Like, here's what they gained, uh, through that carnage, um, very controlled, very, uh, precise carnage, but carnage nonetheless. And, uh, and then, yeah, with, with your scene, Tay, again, I, I like this as a counterpoint cause it's more about the characters. And I think I really just like, I love Del Toro's performance and he apparently worked with Villeneuve to cut away most of his dialogue in the script more than once he tells his own backstory to Kate mm. um, and I think he's the best example of this movie's light touch and that less is more he's so much more foreboding he's so much more someone you want you need to know more about but sometimes he's not even in frame properly like can I just get a proper look at him you know um, and, uh, and this, uh, this is a great sequence with him Based on everything. So uh, Tay, last uh, last last course on the table. <laughs> uh, Would you bring to the potluck? Uh, so obviously, with the border crossing scene being taken care of by James, I had to talk about the other big set piece scene in this film, uh, which kind of was a big reason this film was lauded for its cinematography. Uh, it's the tunnel scene towards the end of the film. Mm-hmm. It's not the cli- it. I guess you could say it's the climactic buildup scene, but it is not the end of the film. Uh, there is. Yeah, I think it is. I think it's the climax for Kate. Yes, it's where she really she really finds out what's going on. But it's it's not the climax for for uh, Alejandro. Yeah, this is a complex film in the sense that there are two differing protagonists. Then, like, One there's is- arguments to be made that depending on whose side you're taking the, other, the, the other. opposite person is the antagonist to the protagonist mm-hmm. with Alejandro and Kate's yeah. characters. But, uh, the scene takes place at, uh, one uh, to one thirty two thirteen. So it's approximately an hour and 23 minutes into the movie, 
and it's a 10 minute scene. Uh, I've cut out the part of lit them leading up to getting to the tunnel. So this scene is just focusing mm-hmm. on when uh, the Delta squad, uh, accompanied by Kate, Alejandro, and Matt, uh, find the tunnel leading under the border uh, after a tip from Guillermo. And they infiltrate... In theory. In theory. Uh, they they <laughs> then infiltrate the tunnel uh, with Kate and... Reggie uh, at the back of the line so they don't see a lot of what happens in the tunnels. They see a lot of the results. And then making it out into the light at the end of the tunnel, Alejandro uh, kills one drug trafficker and forces a police officer to take him to find Guillermo's cousin. Fausto. Fausto Alacorn. Alacorn. (laughs) Great name. Uh, And Kate attempts to stop him and uh that's the end of the scene so we're going to kind of break down all this from a cinematography standpoint first and foremost because that's kind of how the, what the scene relies upon to be its storytelling big oscar snub big oscar well, snub we, like I, they gave it to him for 2049 but it's wild that he didn't get it for this we can talk about big oscar snubs it di- <laughs> <laughs> it di- what did this movie lose to it lost to the revenant for cinematography so that was a tight race. That was a tough one because Lubezki was obviously a heck of a cinematographer in those few years, particularly. He was winning everything, so that was tough. Well, they had all that. They all had all that that natural light gimmick going for them, which you know people love. But uh, then, uh, then you bring know. this scene to the table, though, and look what Deacons and Villeneuve do. Yeah. So when yeah. Where, where they were filming was, I believe, close to El Paso, Texas. And then they shot in parts like outside of Mexico City as well. But they, they talked mm-hmm. about on the production how the weather gave them these beautiful vistas. Uh, they had It was really stormy at this time of the season. So they had a lot of mm-hmm. big storms moving in and out. And that's why they got so many of these amazing dark uh, clouds saturated by like bright sunsets. So this mm-hmm. scene starts off at dusk. And the brilliance of the scene is how Deacons chose to illustrate... Night, uh, night vision and thermal vision cinematography and this camera was both expensive and required uh, someone who had special expertise on using the camera to assist yeah. Deacons and that's saying something when Deacons needs someone else to help him with a piece of tech so this camera was probably the, one of the most advanced thermal imaging cameras at the time and was given to them by uh, like a military agency of some kind and they chose to do it this way because they had all the characters wearing night vision and it wouldn't have made any sense if you, the audience, could see the action around and all the characters were wearing night vision. It's pretty revolutionary, groundbreaking thinking considering it's so simplistic in its delivery. Uh, you you would assume that they would do this kind of, like normally they just do it in post though. They would add Correct. the night vision or the IR uh, after the fact, which would be complicated in its own way, but... Probably, like, of the two options, with your given director and production team, they'd be like, what is, what is, we'll add a filter on in post, right? right. Where we do the footage but from a normal Deacons camera. Deacons doesn't, doesn't do filters. No. no I th- he doesn't like, he likes doing camera. <laughs> I think what's, what's interesting is not, not only just how well the FLIR view works and how military it feels, because it's the same systems that they would put on the nose of an attack helicopter. Uh, you know, for for operating after nar- after dark, that sort of thing, and and technically very similar systems are used to now help uh, semi-autonomous vehicles drive. 
um, on the road. They just don't have that v- this, the exact same quote unquote eye, which is what we benefit from in the in the film is this kind of textured, weird reverse contrast, but still very high resolution sort of look at uh, at a pitch black scene. But uh, I mm-hmm. think what they need to be commended for is, you know, I, I was joking earlier when I said that, you know, Deacons is best at dawn or dusk. And, you know, we saw that in the third act of Skyfall, right, which was also an, 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 an intense action sequence that hinged a lot on um, in situation light explosions, tracer bullets, things like that. 1917 eventually. Too. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. 1917, maybe even more so uh, with 1917. Goodness sakes, what a movie. Um, but with this, you get you get the you get the kind of a, a little bit of the lay of the land where you watch them get kitted up. You have the, the kind of gruff special forces guy saying like barrels down fingers off the trigger don't shoot one of my guys right like giving them no respect and yeah. and then yeah. and then very quickly the 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 tone kind of changes everybody gets really quiet the helmets go on the the night vision you know single single side goggles come down and and as that happens the sun has set so now the only contrast is pitch black, like beautiful dark texture, and the the background of the sky and the bright, you know, desert desert sun uh, sunset. And then before you know it, they dip into this canyon, and it's just darkness. And they hand they hand you this out of the darkness, this view, and, and it's just it's so much more impactful than if if they had gotten out of a vehicle in the dark and clicked it on like like you might right. in a video game or or in a in a movie that was le- that's less specific um i yeah well, so again, it's just I, something else that that transition shot is like an an all-timer yeah, where it it's is. the guys the guys walking beneath the horizon from our perspective they're walking into darkness it directly plays into the plot and the metaphors they're they're going from where you can see or or where they might be exposed where what they're doing might might not be okay into they're they're descending into again the beast or into this this other this other plane of existence where you don't know the rules of engagement going in they haven't even told you yet and but you know where they're going isn't a good place and i think it was daniel kalua in one of the behind the scenes things i watched that said that they were not allowed to have any lights on on any of the even production vehicles on site so it was actually almost pitch black when they were shooting this, but they did have real night vision and thermal vision. So the actors and crew were actually doing okay, or at least the people who got to wear them. Uh, and mm-hmm. That's part wild. of the, I think the, in addition to what you guys have added to this, I did want to say, James, also there is some beautiful thermo Im- thermal imagery from helicopter shots in this scene too that are kind of inter like, mixed True, in yeah. with the night vision and the thermal vision POV shots. There's some really mm-hmm. nice drone. F- or I actually, you know what? According to Villeneuve, they used helicopters for almost everything else. So I'm going to go out on a limb and say they were helicopter thermal imagery too. Um, but what I like most about this scene, aside from the cinematography, is that we are almost entirely following Kate and Reggie's perspectives, and they miss all the violence. They only see mm-hmm. the soldiers ahead of them firing off into other tunnels and then a couple bodies strewn across the, the tunnel floor as they move past them. And they're following this set of lit, uh, glowing footprints that are lit because of the heat. Apparently and they shot that by getting a PA to walk 
or to heat up their boots and then walk through the scene immediately before Deacons and the camera crew rolled through. And so that that was a uh, pretty cool to mm-hmm. see. Yeah, and you, you get the view out of the tunnel as Alejandro comes in and pulls his knife. Yeah. And and it's this it almost Hitchcocky yeah. thing where the knife approaches at this kind of just gets weird and angle bigger. and you're like yeah. Huh, that's a, it's such a specific camera move or, or non camera move, I guess, in some yeah. ways. Uh, well, the, and, kni- the and, knife's coming at you, right? Yeah, and then and then I guess yeah. the idea is that we're in the tunnel, so for it's like it's like when we saw Alejandro or Donovan come towards the car, towards the camera on the um, on the bridge sequences. Uh, oh, you know, yeah. I, I, yeah, I think this is, and and then and then you start to follow it, and it's interesting because like like you're saying, we start to see a more of a third person view of Kate and um, uh, uh, Reggie. Reggie. Yeah, we start to see a more third-person view of Kate and Reggie, and then of course Kate's weapon gets hit out of her hands. They split up because she wants to go after. Her. She's starting to realize that Alejandro is really the the linchpin of what's happening here. He's the mm-hmm. the the true operator, and uh, and so she goes after him. And and but up until then, it's it's a lot of yeah. It's you, there's a lot of gunfire. And and previously at that meeting in the motel, he had asked for you know Fourth of July on on meth or whatever. Uh, and steroids maybe i don't remember what the exact line was but uh, either way and and so they're in there just causing a complete ruckus and you really don't none of that becomes an action sequence yeah well like like you were saying taylor like from kate and reggie's perspective they don't get to see the action and also i mean in that cineflix video they sort of mentioned how like the border crossing scene is the height of the tension that's never really brought back in the other sequences kind of suggesting like this one should have had it and i don't think that's correct at all like i think it's been well established that like there is no risk here right like the the thing the thing that kate and reggie are worried about aren't them getting shot or the delta force members getting shot those guys have the firepower and the tech and the the compunction to completely control the scene so i don't think any any of the drama or or conflict in the sequence is like oh are they going to survive i don't think you're ever worried about them making it through this tunnel i think you it's more about like i have to see i want to know what is alejandra doing right because you're there with kate that's she even when she gets disarmed she's only got her her sidearm uh reggie goes down another tunnel and she she just follows alejandra because again at that point you're kind of like i need to see what this is like yeah we only get to see what Our, kate gets to see in the tunnels and i think that it's an important decision in Vil- for villeneuve that Kate only sees the repercussions of the violence and the consequences of the violence because this further adds to her mental state after the tunnel sequence is done where she can't mm-hmm. capture Alejandro like on her terms. So she goes and punches uh, Matt in the face and they have a little mm-hmm. scuffle after this scene. Uh, and a lot of her frustration comes from what she has just witnessed in the tunnels, not just what she saw with Alejandro because this whole thing this whole operation is set up to get Alejandro to the other end of the tunnel. It's not to really do anything else. So yeah. all these bodies are just uh, the thing, things that got in the way. Collateral. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and I want to commend, uh, again, like uh, Blunt and, uh, and Kaluuya for yeah. this very split-second shot there where after... They're right, they're right about to get in there, and the Delta Force commander is like, so, okay, what are the rules of engagement? And they're like, weapons free. Like, do whatever you want. And you get this one shot of both both Reggie and Kate have, like, the single goggle on, so they're only acting with one eye, 
and you have to get across the absolute like the abject shock at what they just heard about what they what they now know they're going into there is there are no limitations on, the, on these rules of engagement. Yeah. Yeah, it's not something you and, hear uh, a lot and, and, in military dialogue. Yeah. What was the term- terminology there, Tim? Is all weapons, weapons free. free? That's right. And I mean, I mean, in the script, they double down later on. Like the one guy's like, after the guy knifes a couple people, the the Delta Force commander, he's like, he's like, do I have to call something out? And and Matt's like, weapons couldn't be freer. Do just do it. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and then I guess I want to talk about this last part of the scene where she confronts Alejandro, who's already taken out, uh, I don't know, one of the traffickers. Uh, what, like, like a, yeah, like a, a cartel member who's helping Silvio pack the car. Yeah. And before before Kate gets there, I do want to note just the way they edit Del Toro's entrance. Oh, yeah. Where yeah. Sound. They're, they're packing the car and they hear all the gun the gunfire and then the lights go off in the tunnel. And then they start unpacking the car, and then the the cartel member pulls a gun on Silvio, tries to get the get the keys. It's like a shot like towards the tunnel on the cartel member, and then a shot towards the car on the cartel member. And then he gets shot in the back of the head, and they cut back, and Alejandro is fifteen feet out of the tunnel. He's five feet away from Silvio, like operating exactly like a ghost. Yeah. There's no noise. There's no warning before he's he's executed that guy. And it really. You know what, James mentioned it during, when we were talking about your scene, Tim, like the intentionality of Alejandro's physical movements is something that was mm-hmm. clearly intentional by Villeneuve and Deacons, but also by Benicio Del Toro himself. Like his, yeah, yeah. Uh, like the way he moves in this movie is, is terrifying. His, uh, his hip, his hip fire at Kate is, uh, yeah. Yeah. from retention, extremely, yeah. extremely exact. Yeah. yeah so, I, you know, I think a lot of this just makes the movie so much more engaging these little details and that's what I that's what I love about Villeneuve's movies is that it's that specificity that I've mentioned a few times and I think the end result is especially if you're if you're a detail nerd like it's one thing to love a movie for it's just for its story it has a great story or a couple great performances or whatever but this movie has just has like an endless amount of texture to go over and it's all the result of like a decision some thoughtful discourse and then a decision or, or just pure talent and and it ends up being something kind of better than just the story would might have been alone or um, a single action sequence might have been alone um, because there's so much here to attach to um, if you're perceptive to it. Yeah, and I it's this is a rare moment in movies like this too, even where there's a double cross or a character has to shoot someone they don't want to shoot, so they don't they do don't do a kill shot, they do a, a hurting or a harmful kind of shot, and the way mm-hmm. he the way he just puts two in Kate's vest is amazing. Yeah. It's, it's so exact. It's, it's like, there's no, there was never a real question. It was just, he, he gives her one chance, which is pretty generous for him. She, she refuses. He takes her down. And then, I mean, it's nice to think that like, Oh, he, he wouldn't want to kill her. But again, it's established a scene or two later. He can't kill her. They need her to sign off that it was by the book. Right. Right. She's still an asset to their end goals. It's. It was just nice to see the realism of the scenario play out. Like she is huffing, mm-hmm. she's down, and it's not like she can like still yeah. scramble to get her gun. No, she like tries and like kind of lays back down on her back. And we already know Kate has both a quick reaction time and is tough as nails. So mm-hmm. the realism of the scenario playing out, uh, I can see this being pretty accurate as yeah, like to real life as taking two bolts to the chest would definitely knock the wind out of you and make you unable to move yeah. for a second. 
And you know when they're when they're gearing up when uh, Reggie's trying to get them to leave, um, and she goes back to the car and gets their gear. She hands him plates that go in the front and the back of the vest, and she says front and back. That's how little she trusts these yeah. folks. But yeah. yet somehow she's surprised that he shoots her. Like it's right in her face when when the yep. camera's on her, That's and then true, he's actually. right over her again. She looks scared and surprised. Like what what? You just shot. You well, just again, shot like, me. You know, like he and he goes. He's Don't the ever one point he tells a gun her to get me again. Yeah, and of course she does. He again yeah. the next time they see each other. But but I mean, again, like their their relationship is that really interesting thread throughout this movie, where like he's telling her take your service weapon mm-hmm. out. He's kind of coaching her. He also like you know he saves her from Burnthal, and then also like shows concern for like how her neck was healing the next day. There's all these things where like. Almost certainly, I think it's easier to ascribe it as to manipulation, right? Like working an asset uh, than it is actual care. But he also says she reminds yeah, him of someone exactly. that was very important to him. Yeah. So I think it just adds, it where, adds where he falls along the spectrum between Kate and Matt is always kind of up for interpretation. I agree. Which is which is another very fascinating thing. He's less like Matt than you think he is at the beginning. I think it, Matt's a means to an end for him, and and he's a means to an end for Matt. Yeah. Mm. Right, but they you do, don't get they the, do you don't get the impression they're like they're like really tight as much as they both know what each other wants out of this this kind of scenario. Yeah, it's more of I guess it's yeah. more of a familiarity. Symbiotic. They're both professionals. Yeah, yeah, and like their their ability to kind of work seamlessly is made evident in the scenes where like Matt's sitting in the front seat and Alejandro's torturing Joe Bernthal in the back of the car, and it's just kind of like they've done this. Mm so many times like this is how the beats play out and Matt just wears that nasty smirk on his face the whole scene and well that's that's the one time you actually see some personality or some familiarity between the two of them is um like he asks like Bernthal's got two phones and he's like which one are the are the dirty cops on and he's like he's like the crappy one and he goes is this one the crappy one and then he looks and Alejandro looks in the rearview mirror and smiles at Matt and Matt kind of chuckles like they're both there, uh, a, an oddly wry moment from from Alejandro, but Same I think Bernthal, Bernthal is such such small fry to them that like the whole th- like again, what's going to be my shout out uh, is is a particular joke in that. I, scene, I also but, think yeah. if we're gonna if we're gonna talk about Bernthal and that little scene, I, I think very clearly that they're they're showing the they're showing that Matt and and Alejandro have some respect for the idea of rules. Like the idea, like a dirty cop is worse to them than what they are. Right. Way worse. Yeah. You know, if, if they, if there's a Delta to the morality of this film, they see Barenthal as being a cartel member and, yeah. and, and there's some judgment in that, in, in a lot of what Matt does in that scene, this not necessarily holier than thou, but like you and I aren't the same thing. We're not on the same team. You might as well not even be speaking the same language. Like. Mm-hmm. This is gonna, it's going to work out like this, and you have a few decisions. But I'm, it, there, he's not like um, he's not making any shortcuts for for him. You know, you're going to spend the rest of your life yeah. in prison. You just get to pick where. And it's not that mm-hmm. they're doing it because they're mad that he almost killed Kate. They're mad. I think Couldn't like wait, for what you said, James, because he's a scummy a version of yeah. like mm-hmm. what they are, and they don't see him as the same, or they see him as like the opposite of them. An enemy, yeah. Well, yeah. Again, again, like you know, the thing with Bernthal to them, at worst, it's a bonus. At best, it was part of their plan. Was they realized Kate went into the bank, she got identified by the cartel. It's like, okay, we keep an eye on her. Someone's going to come after, her, and that guy's probably going to have some information for yep. us. 
Um, and what, like the other yeah. torture scene we mentioned, you don't see him again after that cell phone Getting line. roughed up. He's yeah. just gone. <laughs> Disappears. Gone. Yeah. Which is well, and then but the, the, you also don't see anything between the scene where Alejandro points the gun at him, where he's on top of Kate and just about to choke her out, um, and then the next scene when you see him, he's in the car and clearly he's roughed up, and you're not really sure, and then you see Alejandro's hands. Uh, yeah. You know, he tuned him up real good. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, Tay, unless there's anything else on your uh, on your scene, yeah. uh, this this is a good transfer over to shout yeah, that, outs. That was pretty much it. I uh, I love this scene. Good scene. for the cinematography and mm-hmm. the editing, and in like the truly innovative camera work of Deacons, yeah. which did I I will say got snubbed for an Oscar, even though I did love Lubeski's work in Revenant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Tough a really year. really iconic work in this one. Tough year. Um, but yeah, so my shout out is uh, just from that Bernthal scene that uh, that we were talking about. Uh, the the what what I've written down is the most painful wet willy <laughs> you ever seen, and I think it's I think it's acted mm-hmm. well, I think it's directed well, and I think it's surprising. I don't like because like I mean before that like um the first time he doesn't answer a question in that scene that they want him to, I feel like hits him in the back. Alondra like grabs. Uh, oh, no, yeah. like he grabs like a cut on his forehead and squeezes like it. His eyebrow, which again is like it's very. <laughs> I thought it, or, or I thought it was his hair. Even cut. I think he's just, just pinching his eyebrow. Oh, I thought he grabbed the eyebrow. But again, it's like it's these things where like he's not punching him in the face. He's not shooting him in the kneecap. None of these things were like I think if you if you had to guess the top five ways that they're gonna like depict a, a, a backseat interrogation like this. It's not going to be the pinch, and it's definitely not going to be the wet willy. There's a little bit um, of glee which, to the wet willy as well in the performance, where he's like, I, "I'm going to do it," and you could tell like yeah. Matt's got him in the in the in the rear view, like he's seen this. The they've yeah. done this 50 times. Like he knows the yeah. wet willy's coming, and he just mm. goes right for the brain on it. It really like I don't know actually how you act that and make it look that like I'm, like I I mean Bernthal's selling it, which is part of it, but I feel like. You see a knuckle and a half disappear in in Bernthal's head. I was thinking about right. that. It's gnarly. And, and usually, like, usually the yeah. film scenes like with hair pulling and stuff, it's the other person has mm-hmm. their hand on your hand. So there obviously is none of that. And they control. But it looked it. like yeah. uh, I'm doing it on the video so you guys can see. But like they had like the finger in, and then he had oh. the back of his ear grabbed with the thumb, and then mm-hmm. you're able to control his head without making your finger jam in. So even if your finger's like like close, know what I'm. I know what I'm curious about. I'll have to go back and watch it. But I wonder if they pulled that J.J. Abrams Tom Cruise cheat from Mission Impossible Three. You guys ever hear about that? No. Where there's so there's a there's a sequence where they the bad guy Philip Seymour Hoffman in that movie has like he'll put like a little exploding capsule in your brain by like firing a syringe mm. up your nose, and it's the opening scene of the movie where they do that to Tom Cruise to ethan hunt and i guess the the actor who was working with hunt or with with Cruz kept hurting his nose right he was being too rough with him and they're like you can't you can't hurt tom cruise's nose that's not okay so the workaround was they painted tom cruise's arm like the other guy and just shot it hit the elbow out of frame and tom cruise did Uh. it to himself and now I'm curious. I don't think they could have done that with this with Bernthal, and like they'd have to get a different sleeve set on. I don't. It's, I don't. It's I really around the corner, but I think they just <laughs> yeah. did it, and it hurt a bit. I wouldn't be surprised if Bernthal was just like, "Yeah, just you know, go for he's, it." He's he's wonderful. <laughs> he's wonderful. But that's yeah, that's that's my shout out. Just something that sticks with me from this movie that isn't the tension or the cinematography. Uh, yeah, I think I think it's a great little moment. So for my shout out, I 
am going to just mention and call out the film's amazing cinematography through helicopter shots. Uh, because in one of the behind the scenes, Villeneuve specifically mentions that they didn't want drone shots. They chose to go for the helicopter shot because of how it actually depicts more of a militaristic viewpoint. Uh, that obviously the military does use drones. It was a lot less common to like familiarity with drone footage was a lot less so when Sicario came out. Like we didn't really know what military drone footage looked like as much but the helicopter footage in this is just refreshing it's so controlled it's so intentional and it just feels so big and uh the fact that they went with real hell yeah like some of the shots some of the shots i love the way that they make the landscape look it looks a little like alien there's a great shot of like a mountain yeah. hill range it's kind of like it, it reminds me of like like tentacles like underneath like like a like a blanket or a shroud. Right. There's something very foreboding about that stuff. Yeah, and there's um, and I'm not sure if I could describe a specific intention, but I think it just adds to your sort of your angst or your unease with the land that they're traveling into. For sure, and and some of it shows patterns. Yes, yeah. right. Like it, it almost feels abstracted. If you if you know the the mm-hmm. photographer Chris Burkhardt, he does a lot of this stuff out of planes over Iceland mm-hmm. and stuff like that, where it. Um, Sometimes he shoots where you can see a plane in the field, so you kind of get an idea for scale. But it's these big, almost purely squared off, top down sort of shots of landscape where you're almost not sure, like, am I looking at something really close up? Am I really far away? It's kind of off balance. There's some abstraction to its quality because there's no reference to size or perspective or the or the horizon. Right. And I, I think they leverage that really nicely in these shots for sure. Yeah, I think it's meant to make you feel sort of trapped or like that this is a landscape that you're stuck within and you kind of are for the film and it it paints this really inhuman desolate kind of world that is where this these two border mm-hmm. towns are built upon that these two border yeah. towns are built upon yeah no yeah no those are those are key key parts of the way that this movie looks and uh and something that i forgot about it was a good good shout out um yeah. what do you got james um, mine's going to go to Jeffrey Donovan playing with the controls in the car, be it the windows yeah. or the locks or I just everything about his performance. I think it was like he did the most with the least. Uh, you know, he's got he says three, four words at a time, um, mm-hmm. but he just he really solidifies a lot. Of, and there's no reason to rehash. We did that for a long time, that scene. But mm-hmm. he really solidifies a lot of what's going on in there. And I think like I would just. You know, if I if I had a chance to have five minutes to chit chat with him about that scene, I bring it up. I'd just be like, "Man, the door locks yeah. and the window down, and the <laughs> mo- moving the position of your weapon, and and the fact that your mm-hmm. eyes are you're never looking anywhere in the car when you're doing any of this. It's all it's like it's very hunterly. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I think it's a uh, yeah, it's, it's fantastic. He's he's great. Yeah, I think Donovan. He could very easily be a character that has like a Steven Seagal level of like focus mm-hmm. and seriousness. But I love, like, he gets off the plane and he's talking about, like, whether or not he has gonorrhea. And he's asking Matt about it. Yeah. And he uses some uh, colorful language uh, for when he's, like, worried about the spotter car in the in the cab and things like that. Like, they, he, he walks this line where it's, like, as an operator in his actions, he's entirely under control. But he's still having a little fun. He's still calm and casual yep. with it, which is very uh, disarming, disconcerting. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I, I think... Uh, uh, I think Sheridan has guys like this in almost all of his stories. 
uh, mm-hmm. people that are kind of overly. Co- if you watch King uh, Mayor of Kingstown, the most recent kind of mm-hmm. big series, there's a there's a SWAT agent that in in many ways I think has been pulled from this, just from a different, more of more of a Upper Peninsula sort of Detroit uh, vibe than mm-hmm. um, than what Donovan brings to this story. But yeah, it's uh, it it you know it's just something that's kind of fun and it makes him it's it's watchable and and he it's it's just nice to, like it's not nice but it's always special when you have a character who has so little time that you don't even like really absorb their name i i, I call him by donovan throughout this whole thing because i know yeah. him as, as the actor but um it's uh it, it's good it's a good performance and i think it adds a lot to that to that sequence really anything that he's in he yeah he's a got a rank with yeah. some of the main lead characters for how many lines he has in the movie <laughs> because of this one scene yeah <laughs> yeah it's pretty sparse yeah um well yeah and i mean with on that on that theme of uh other sheridan properties we can uh uh, pivot over into our recommendations. I'm going with Wind River, which I know we've mentioned on other podcasts, and we mentioned in this mm-hmm. one too. Um, uh, Sheridan directed and wrote this one. Um, it's from 2017. Uh, I, I, I highly recommend it. It's very interesting and in many ways unusual neo western. More fitting in with like Hell or High Water, some of his other stuff. Not so much Sicario, but definitely but some overlap. Very, very, very good use of Bernthal in a specific way. Um, I, I, I would recommend I don't you check think it out. this movie is like Hell or High Water, but there are similarities in his writing of characters that just kind of bring, like I mentioned mm-hmm. it earlier, the sense of like American tradition and values that I think Sheridan really can put under a microscope well, effectively. Yeah. You know, and a lot of his work has circled around uh, native populations, whether it be even even up to the most recent thing. I think that's still on, on that they're still putting out new episodes, eighteen eighty three, uh, which he's involved with. Uh, you know, the kind of precursor to Yellowstone and the idea of mm-hmm. um, of indentured power versus you know lost power, um, and then mm-hmm. Wind River really leans into victims, people who are victims of something, of others' behavior of corporates uh corporations of of different things like this yeah and the idea that you can't really outrun persecution at a certain level yeah uh i think it's a that's a it's a good movie but there's always he has he has some themes that come up in a lot of these in a lot of these uh these works for sure mm-hmm. what do you got for your recommendation james mine is a, a youtube channel that i remember loving just loving and uh, it ran from april 2014 to september 2016 it's called every frame a painting and it Wonder was kind man. of, in my mind, like prestige level um, film criticism, especially around the around the quality of editing and color grading. Yeah. Another thing that that these two guys. So it was produced for, and and the, nicely they didn't take it down. They just stopped um, making new episodes. I think they wanted to move into like legitimate professional work within the space. As if if I remember mm-hmm. 2016 well enough, um, or I guess they ended it December 2017. And mm-hmm. uh, it was Taylor Ramos, and then uh, the the host that people would know would be Tony Zhao, and they just do a lovely job. I mean, if you only watch one, go in and watch the one about Edgar Wright. Um, I think it's mm-hmm. it's yeah, we've we've linked okay. that before. Right. I yeah, think yeah. In, in game in game night, probably. Uh, we're right on. About yeah, yeah. Putting comedy into every frame, or doing a Judd Apatow movie and just doing B roll transitions. Yeah. So I, I I love this kind of stuff. That's super watchable. Uh, I it, it's one of those you know. YouTube channels come in a certain a few varieties. Ones where you interface with a channel on like one video, and that's the one you like from the mm-hmm. channel, and you don't really dig that much deeper. And then there's ones where the channel has kind of a, a property. Like let's say uh, if you really like Corridor Crew, which was the my recommendation on uh, for uh, the Blade Runner potluck, uh, 
let's say you only watched VFX artists react on Saturdays, right? And then there's other channels where anything they put out, you don't even care about the title or the topic. You know that they'll treat it with a certain level of respect and you just go for it. And this was one of those for me. Um, the Edgar Wright one, how to do visual comedy, the, the how to do action comedy with Jackie Chan. Insane. Yeah. Uh, I cannot recommend any of these enough. Pick one that's in your visual space. He does an incredible mm-hmm. one about uh, Joel and Ethan Cohen for the shot reverse shot. And, and mm-hmm. if you like making movies or, or, or maybe you're, maybe you're going to uh, this year, you're going to set out and make your first short film. Watch all these first. You're going to have a little, little toolkit of stuff to borrow from others that, mm-hmm. that do a really good job. And it's explained really nicely. And, um, and the videos themselves, as you'd imagine, are really well produced. So my, my yeah. suggestion is um, every frame a painting. Yeah. And a little, a little tag along suggestion with that one after leaving that channel, one of the things that uh, Ramos and, and Joe did do was they're a part of the new Netflix series of war, uh, which are little video essays about movies. Uh, and they did one on um, sympathy for lady vengeance. Um, who the, the director of which uh, 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 park uh, we're going to be covering next month. Um, so that wouldn't be, wouldn't be a bad one right, to, uh, yeah. to talk about. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Have a look at, but yeah. And what about you, Tay? What are you recommending? Well, it's funny that James just mentioned Ethan and Joel Cohen. I was going to pick one of their movies uh, as my recommendation because of the Deacons connection to this one. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went through their filmography. And I was like, I don't, I think people should just watch all of their movies. So I don't, I didn't pick one <laughs> from the Coens, but every one of the Coen brothers movies, especially the ones that Deacon shot are amazing. Check them all out. Um, my recommendation is actually, we were talking about how good and slick the editing is in this movie. Uh, Joe Walker is the editor um, right. I believe I've recommended one of his films before called Widows, which is a Steve McQueen film. Mm-hmm. Um, with Kaluuya. Yeah, with, also with Daniel Kaluuya. And a scene-stealing Kaluuya. And John Bernthal. Yeah. But uh, the movie I'm recommending today, sorry for the confusion leading up to this point, but I'm going to talk <laughs> about, I want to mention 2009's Harry Brown, uh, directed oh, by Daniel yeah. Barber. And this movie stars Michael Caine and Emily Mortimer. This is some movie. Uh, yeah, it's <laughs> way more violent than you think it's going to be, especially because yeah. Michael Caine is like, you know, his, he's Michael Caine's age, and that's the character mm-hmm. he plays, and he's still uber violent. I believe he's ex-military of some kind. Um, this movie is very British. I haven't seen it in, mm-hmm. in several years, so don't, like, so forgive my <laughs> vagueness on the plot, but I also like to keep my plots vague when recommending movies. Yeah. This movie... Like if you if you think you've seen all there is in action revenge movies, uh, try this one because yeah. I remember this being really refreshing for a genre that is very repetitious. Mm-hmm. Rep- uh, yeah. Walker edited this. Yes. Yes. Cool. And very so cool. He, he obviously I'm sure there's a British connection because this movie was super super British. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. Well, how about that? So our recommendations actually all really have a, a thread of revenge in them. Wind Ri- Harry Brown, especially Wind River, to an extent, and uh, to- yeah, Tony Joe's um, Netflix essay is about uh, vengeance and revenge and and how it operates in movies. Uh, so there you go. That's a nice little theme there. Killer. <laughs> right on. Um, and then other than that, of course, we recommend that you check out uh, the Grey NATO James's podcast. They just recently did a. Fairly long-form discussion on Bond. Yeah. Uh, the movies, the books, the style. But I, I'd say like primarily the movies and really some great insight about what makes Bond, Bond. And I mean, I really love, just as a little call-out to it, uh, Jason talking about 
resourcefulness mm-hmm. as one of like the key unique traits of Bond uh, when compared to his sort of contemporary action heroes. Yeah. It's about him always finding a way to get the job done and it will always be in a way that maybe you would you wouldn't have guessed ahead of time but uh, I really enjoyed that episode. We'll link it in the in the notes. Yeah, I appreciate that. We Yeah, I appreciate that. We uh we actually had a piece in that where like you don't have a Jason Bourne without a James Bond beforehand. Like his ability to just mm-hmm. do anything and even without half a memory just to have the, the yeah. this like physical ability and and conceptual ability to to get his way in and out and then he even explains it at one point in the bond movies or the the born movies where i can run flat out at this altitude for this long yeah, i know yeah, that the yeah. way that that guy walks means he can carry himself and like these sorts of things and that's like that's all mm-hmm. bond stuff for sure yeah so it was a fun episode though my my co-host who you mentioned jason my lovely co-host is a huge bond fan uh across the entire kind of scope movies and and the books and and that kind of thing and and for me it, it's very much a daniel craig thing so it was fun to kind of compare and contrast mm-hmm. that yeah, yeah, in that episode, you guys talked about lots of different movies. You save some No Time to Die spoilers and discussion for yeah, the we end. Yeah, spoil so it all. It's super accessible. <laughs> even, even if you're not totally up to date, they give you some warnings. So I'd, I'd say go check it out just as soon as we're wrapped up here, which is uh, very shortly. Just want to say thanks for listening to one of our longest episodes, without a doubt. Uh, if, you're, if you're listening on iTunes, please give us a star rating. Please give us a review. It does, does us a lot of good. And otherwise, connect with us on Instagram at SSCPod. We do a weekly roundup of what everybody's watching. You get some great recommendations, a little bit of insight into something that you may have overlooked. But uh, with that, thank you so much for joining us for another Potluck, James. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on, fellas. It's a great movie. I'll see you in 10 episodes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, thanks, James. Another well-known. Yeah, yeah. All right, thanks, guys. We'll, we'll see you next time. Everybody. You know.